Cause I can sing all them songs about Texas And I still do all So, uh, music-wise, Jared Our listeners have just been serenaded by Mid-20th century composer David Allen Coe Oh boy <laughs> <laughs> All right this is NPR's Morning Music, and I'm joined by Jared of the Compost Bin of History podcast. Man, I thought I had a problem with when you put Wonderwall on one of our podcasts. <laughs> well, I just did that to show how moody and uh, irresponsible Socrates was. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, hopefully that came through then. <laughs> Maybe not. But yeah, so we're doing uh, Bowie Chapter 1 today. And I guess I kind of wanted to start it off with an outlaw country musician. Because after our little woke fest last week, we're kind of just going to wallow in some redneck shit today. All right. Well, I should feel right at home then. I mean, that's the thing. is like for all of our attempts at <clears throat> book learning, you and I are kind of rednecks. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, I've tried to reform. I'm a reformed redneck. <laughs> How about that? We're definitely like closer to Willie Nelson than Charlie Daniels, though. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, <laughs> I haven't eaten possum or uh, yeah made any like threats or slurs towards uh, <laughs> homosexuals in quite some yeah. time. So yeah, I, I guess uh, you know I look at like outlaw country, like especially David Allen Coe who was, you know, definitely some of his stuff is really questionable in retrospect. Like, in one of his really popular songs, he uses the N-word, but not in, like, a pejorative way, which is kind of... I mean, I guess all uses of the N-word are pejorative, but he, he didn't, like, mean it as an N... I don't know. But it's it's uh, problematic in retrospect. Wait, how's the song go? I'm not, I mean, um, well, I'll, I'll play, I'll play a clip of it. How about that? Okay. <laughs> but he basically says that, um, you know, when he was growing up, he had to work very hard for his room and board and he used a pejorative like a, you know, like a black person, right? Oh yeah. Because indeed in the, you know, social structure of the South at this time period in the mid 20th century, you know, black people had to work very hard to you know just get by right as the you know they lacked the generational wealth that was due to them from their the labor of their ancestors i feel like you don't really have to be talking about the past or the south for those things to still kind of be true about black right. people i'll uh save i'll save everybody the pejorative but yeah yeah that's what i'm saying like david allen co i feel like has actually pretty good class politics in the sense that I'm not, I haven't actually like, unlike with Ozzy Osbourne, I haven't looked into his life at all. Well, but I, mean, I think <laughs> a lot of the, a lot of the redneckest of country musicians, even if they did, you know, drop some slurs here and there, they were like union proud. politics. 
Yeah. Um, you know, <clears throat> country stars of the day, they've cleaned up their mouth a little bit, but their politics have gotten way worse. I know, like Johnny Cash, you know, all about prison abolition and shit, right? And reform. They were all on drugs. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I, I think I think what you said I feel like is Hank exactly Williams right. Jr. is the one person that, like, straddles both sides of it very poorly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, he's got the bigoted, awful views, did some drugs, right. but, like, I don't know. I guess he, he just didn't drink himself to death quick enough. Well, I mean, yeah, and, you know, I think, like, Charlie Daniels, I think he made a full about face. Like, he went from being, like, kind of one of the, you know, the more positive, like politically minded generation of outlaw country people to just cashing in on reactionary republicanism. Yeah. I don't know though. One of his like biggest hits is literally about just beating up gay people. So yeah. And then there's the whole South will rise again thing. (laughs) I think he was just a Confederate from day one, actually. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, you know, he was just poor. So, (laughs) and that's the thing, right? So, I think all of this is relevant to like Jim Bowie. I mean, because... even even the like working class movement of like the 30s and 40s. A lot of those guys didn't take real kindly to any non-whites. Exactly. I mean, there were certainly some people within it who were extremely egalitarian as well, though. Right. Oh, yeah. I, mean... I mean, shit. Even uh, Woody Guthrie, someone I really respect and love, uh, he used to do some pretty questionable racial shit at the beginning. Yeah, like I said, I think for what we're going to talk about with Jim Bowie, our much-anticipated episode, there's going to be a lot of that kind of... These are people who have some good attributes, some things that we that we can appreciate, but then they also did some pretty slimy things as well, you know? Well, they're not cartoon characters like we're led to believe people are. They're complicated people with... Right. All kinds of different motivations and, you know. Yes, absolutely. I don't <laughs> want us to sound like William flawed. Davis. And I don't want, I mean, we are going to sound like William Davis because I'm using his his book, Three Roads to the Alamo, The Lives and Fortunes of David Crockett, James Bowie, and William Barrett Travis. But whereas I kind of think he's a little, being a little bit of a Confederate apologist, I think that we need to kind of be critical, but also, you know, we can, I think... In some ways, like what he says, regrettably, I have to say this, like what he says about, you know, some Confederate leaders, there are some things we can learn from these people, right? Oh, of course. I mean, why why talk about history at all if you're not going to try to learn from it? Exactly. You know, <laughs> in, in the spirit of the compost bin, yeah. we're, we're, we're getting all, all, all angles. We're, we're taking yeah. it from all sides here. But you can definitely learn from people without trying to, like... I don't know advance what they thought right that's that's you really put the finger on the button yes yeah so i guess we kind of didn't really introduce ourselves this is compost bin of history i'm james that's jared i'm jared and i'm drinking a a, a pear cider today and i've just got a cup of peppermint tea oh keeping it healthy yeah, this this is going to be a little bit of a long one, so I'm trying to keep my vocal cords relaxed. Okay. For maximum podcasting. All right. Jared, it all started with a garden. Okay, I like this already. I'm going to do a shout out to the dollop here. 
Scotland, 1581. <laughs> year of our Lord. <laughs> year of our Lord, 1581. And year of our king, because King James the Sixth granted a tenement and a garden to his master of the wine cellar, one Jerome. I want to be Jerome. <laughs> I want to be the master of a wine cellar who gets gifted a garden from a king. That sounds awesome. Well, and also a tenement, which is like a building you can, you know, be a landlord of, right? Like you can What is that like an, an apartment complex? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, Jerome runs the fucking vineyard. I mean, Ma- can no, I like, not even the vineyard. He's the master of the wine cellar. Yeah, can I like hire somebody else though to take care of this tenement while I just fuck <laughs> off to the wine cellar and garden all day? Yeah, I mean, he he must be a fucking ace in the wine cellar, Jerome. Hell now, yeah. here's his full name, okay? I mean, no wonder the king liked him. He just gets shit-faced with this guy all the time and Yeah. <laughs> this dude just shows up out of the cellar like, "Hey, check out this wine." <laughs> Jerome, Jerome, listen, listen, bro. I'm going to give you I'm going to give you a, a tenement and a and, and a garden. <laughs> Thanks, bro. Dude, I'll bring you four <laughs> bottles of wine next time. That's awesome. <laughs> All right, so Jerome's full name is Jerome MacGillibuie, okay? That sounds like an OG Scottish name. This is yeah, let's talk a little bit about Scottish names. So Mac, which is very common in Scottish names, basically is like Gaelic for son of. And then Gilly or Gile. Gile. Yeah. Gile. Gile means um, kind of like a hunting and fishing guide, like a huntsman in like the old feudalist day of of, uh, royal courts. So Mac Gillibui basically means the son of the huntsman Bui. This would eventually be shortened and just what, to Bowie. What was a huntsman back in the day? Because it wasn't just like some guy that decided he liked hunting, right? Right. You know, all of the land was held by the lord or the the king, right? And so there were like these some common lands that you know many people could could farm, but um, any land that basically held game that was forested that was like the king's land. So the huntsman was like a servant of, you know, the king or lord, right? Yeah, and if you were out hunting in the king's land unsanctioned, you would get fucked up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you'd totally get fucked up. That was not cool. Yeah. <laughs> hunting was traditionally a sport of uh, the nobility. And so... Um, uh, in that yeah. vein, do you know why, like, the moniker Windfall exists? Uh, no, I, I don't. Uh, apparently back, like, in those... In the medieval times, uh, the forested lands were all owned by the king, but if you were like adjacent to a forested land, apparently, and a tree fell down in a big wind, you were allowed to harvest it. Ah. But you were not allowed to cut down the king's trees otherwise. Very interesting. That's so cool. I hope no, that's I true, that. but I've heard that before. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> Historiography. Yeah. Uh, all right, so um, I'm pretty certain that that's true. With reference to the name Bowie, I'll give you the original spelling. It's B H U I D H E, right? So if you were to like try and pronounce it phonetically, it looks like it would be like Bahuidahi. Is that like okay? Welsh? Uh, it's it's Gaelic. It's it's basically Gaelic. Okay. So 
That language does um, not make any sense. Like Magillabui, you know? That kind of Magillabui, yeah. Yeah. You just get wasted and, like, buoy just means, like, boy. <laughs> like, that hunting boy. Yeah. <laughs> Son of that hunting boy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and you know what? Like, everything from, like, the wine cellar to the garden to the hunting boy, that really is, like, that's the family of the buoys, you know? Hell so yeah, I'm going to read a... I'm going to quote here from Davis. Like so many Scots, Jerome called his son James for his king, a name repeated generation after generation until John Bowie crossed the ocean to Maryland in about 1705 and settled on the Patuxent River in Prince George's County. And so uh, I'm also one of those inheritors of the James name from Scottish background. Yeah, and how is, like, James and Jim and kind of John also the same name sometimes? Uh, I mean, I think that goes back even older to, like, uh, old, like, continental European, like, Ur dialects and stuff, right? Okay. All right, so they cross the ocean. John does, you know, another family name. And in 1760... Now, I gotta wonder... If this guy was, like, the son of the huntsman, and he's the wine cellar guy and gets, like, a tenement, and he gets a garden, like, why are they even crossing the ocean? They're just bored of how great they have it? Between 1581 and 1705, you know, a lot of shit happened, right? Like... I suppose. This one guy... He gets granted, like, this small plot of land to garden and this small tenement to earn income from. But he has, you know, five kids and three of them die. And from those two kids, they have, you know, six kids and three of each of those die. And as, you know, time progresses, this feudal system starts to fill up, as it were. And especially with the introduction of new crops from America, like potatoes, there's kind of a whole population boom that gets kicked off in Europe following the Colombian exchange. So even even the nobility is like feeling the pressure to go out and do a little Lebensraum. Well, I mean, this guy wasn't a noble though, right? Like, you know, these were the the sons of like the the servant class, right? Well, but he's like a gilded servant though. Right, that's he's, true. That's he's true. not just one of like the potato farmers. Yeah. Yeah. A skilled tradesman. And, uh, but this is, he's not the guy who, who came across the ocean, right? That was back in 1581. It's yeah, like, his okay. So a hundred years goes by, you know? Yeah. Well, well, like a hundred and a hundred and twenty, hundred and thirty, 130. Right. Yeah. So several generations. And by then that's kind of the beginning of this wave of migration from Scotland, Ireland, and Europe that would last, you know, through, into the 19th century, right? Or into the 20th century, honestly. Oh, yeah. Scotland and England were some of the first places. Wasn't it the Depression when everybody was pissed at Irish people for coming and taking all the jobs? Right. Like the 20s? Um, I think there was that was more Italians in the 20s. Oh, okay. Honest, so it was like World 1880s when yeah. they were pissed at the Irish? Yep, because that was like the potato famine. And I think a lot of the people who moved out of Scotland and England in those early waves of colonization of the 13 colonies were leaving because of, yeah, the increasing population, but also the closure of public lands. 
In Scotland, it was the Highland closures. But basically, these were all something that we mentioned last time, how nobility and royalty in these feudal societies could basically just seize common lands and distribute them to, you know, members of their family and other people favorably. Basically, it's kind of a way to, like, what's the term looking for? Like, inflate the the general amount of wealth amongst a few people who are your friends. Yeah. <clears throat> Not at all like when Donald Trump decides that he's just going to, like, sell off national parks. I mean, yeah, basically kind of a <laughs> similar thing. Don't don't worry. The, the <laughs> great-grandsons of the people that buy those, they're going to be on Mars in about 75 years. <laughs> all right so uh john Bowie is the guy who crossed the ocean and then his son james Bowie, and this is not the james Bowie that we know for our story but this is like his grandfather okay james Bowie senior leaves maryland in 1760 for south carolina okay so this is the beginning of the Bowie's like slow ascent into the into the south or descent into the south and once he gets to South Carolina, he marries, and then he moves on to Georgia, where he squats for a while, uh, until the government basically gives him some land. And here's another really important part of this story to kind of consider, right? The difference between squatting and uh, speculation, okay? So, in the colonial scene in America, if you just wanted to, like go out and pick a patch of unclaimed land and, you know, start clearing it, you basically could do that. You were essentially a squatter. Uh, well, this actually still happens like in national forests and national parks, right? Like people go into some remote corner of some national forest and they actually do build a little cabin and just like decide to live out there. That's <laughs> I remember that's when you were telling me about like some guy in Rocky Mountain National Park that they had caught doing that or something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it still happens, right? But. Well, of course it does. Yeah. I mean, if I was homeless, I would definitely be doing that. <laughs> that's why. That's would be, yeah. <laughs> why the fuck wouldn't you? I'm not going to yeah, hang I mean, out in some like inner city area. Fuck that shit. I'm going to a national park. Well, I mean, and the reason you can't do that now is because the public lands have been closed in America, right? Like now it's uh, all essentially privately owned even if it is owned by the public right yeah. you still can't just fucking go out there and set up a camp because you got to regulate shit yeah what you're not allowed to stay like even in the wilderness areas you're like not allowed to stay more than like two weeks or something like that i think so yeah i think there's like a that's kind of a standards like a two-week limit on a lot of stuff yeah so yeah they they're trying to prevent squatting and that was kind of the name of the game back there in colonial times, though, right? And that's what James Bowie Sr. was doing. Now, the the polite euphemism for squatting is selecting a plot, right? Okay. Because <laughs> you're out there and you're improving the land in some way. Improving, wink, wink. Sure you are. <laughs> you're developing it. You're developing it. You're clearing the forest. That's a big deal, right? Mm -hmm. You're planting crops and you're building a cabin or some bullshit like that. Yeah. So you're degrading the soil and altering the <laughs> biota and yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, improving the land, yeah. building your little shack. <laughs> 
Yeah, and, you know, eventually you can go to the local government, like the colonial administration, and say, hey, I've been improving this land over here for a while. Man, doesn't it sound like fun, though? <laughs> I mean, it does sound like fun. Like, the the farming, you know? like yeah. the 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 it's like um it's, it's like, like in, farmville it's like in red dead too like after you yeah after you're well spoiler alert after you're <laughs> no longer the main character and you're john marston what it uh-huh. once again i mean yep. that all seems pretty sick yeah you just go to this piece of land and build a house out of the trees that are there and you know. yeah i mean that's it so <laughs> so uh but you're kind of squatting and i understand the, the appeal is, yeah, if the land is owned by someone else, though, that could be a problem. But in colonial America, the someone else was the indigenous peoples yeah. who the I mean, like, what, administration didn't give a fuck about. What if the people that were there just didn't really believe in, like, owning land? Right, exactly. So you just go to the administration of the colony and say, hey, I've been improving this land, wink, wink, and I'm ready to start paying taxes on it. And they'd probably just give it to you. They'd probably oh, yeah. say, well, it's your land now check this shit out i'm over here like <laughs> you know 40 miles from the nearest depot and yeah uh, i haven't succumbed to the attacks of the savages in the area but uh you know yeah i mean that, i'm ready to that's make it. i'm ready to make this plot an honest lady right and the colonial administration would be like fucking great uh you can keep it and get take the 400 acres next to it yeah holy shit do you have any cousins that want to do the same thing because yeah. you know because <laughs> we need to do this genocide <laughs> and we need people <laughs> we need the replacers so yeah um it's it was uh i mean it's it's almost dumb to think about now when it's so hard to like get capital to get wealth like you your op- your options for like accruing that type of value essentially involve like i don't know larceny i guess like is there any other way for a person who doesn't have anything to get to that level of wealth in our society today um i don't know cryptocurrency i guess if you get <laughs> super lucky <clears throat> Yeah, get that cunt Elon Musk to tweet your Dogecoin and just, like, put all your money into it right before okay, he does. That's the one, like, <laughs> that's hilarious because, I mean, the rest of the crypto coins, they had, like, the thinnest veneer of, yeah. like, legitimacy, but Dogecoin was literally created to be a meme. And now yeah, totally. people are becoming millionaires. Because you know what, and I'm making a note for later <laughs> because on. Because Dogecoin is at like what forty cents, right? It, well, <laughs> one of my coworkers like saw follows Elon Musk on Twitter, put a thousand bucks into it, and cashed out with like two thousand. You know? Oh yeah, like I was like, dude, you just made a thousand dollars playing blackjack. Don't forget it. Like, don't start thinking you know how to pick stocks or something, or this isn't gonna happen. Oh no, again. don't crush his <laughs> dreams. That man is an investor now. <laughs> but um let's well seriously though with with cryptocurrency let's stick a pin in that one because i think that's going to be very relevant in terms of economic analogies for later on in our story today oh i i know some people that have made some money on some cryptocurrencies lately (laughs) and they're holding 
they're doing the hodl or whatever. Right, right. So let's let's hope that works out. So Grandpa Jim Bowie is squatting in, or excuse me, he has selected a plot and settled in South Carolina. And he, there he's got to he have an outhouse by now. He's not squatting oh, anymore. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. He's probably pooping on the toilet. So he has two kids, okay, Rezin and Reza. And there's there's going to be a couple people named Rezin in this in this story. Okay, and I've heard Rezin before, but Reza? Yeah, R-H-E-S-A. That sounds like a Ninja Turtles villain. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a, apparently a traditional Scottish name. Okay. Kind of like with uh, Tokesville last time. Remember Alexis Tokesville? Oh, yeah. Now we've got this guy, Rezin. And all the people in this in this story, whenever I think about them, I just think about the type of people who would smoke resin. You know, and of course, resin smoking is like when you hit the end of your stash and you're like so broke that you're scraping out your pipes for like resin of, you know, marijuana tar, right? And then you're like balling that up and smoking it, which I've done a few times and I've been super broke and desperate to get high. I mean, anybody, <laughs> you're fucking lying if you told me, you try to tell me you've never smoked resin. <laughs> so I always think about that when I think about resin and like, these are the type of people they would be smoking resin, not because they're broke, but because they're cheap. Even I'm not that cheap. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I hardly ever finish joints. I usually just compost the, the last quarter of them. <laughs> oh, wow. I know. High society out here in Colorado, <laughs> right? All right. So the two kids are Resin and Reza. And as he has kids, he basically just keeps petitioning for more land. Because like you said, you're starting to get other people out there. And the colonial administration is like, yeah, take another 300 acres. You got two sons? Two sons? Well, take another 400 acres then. Yeah, you know? well, they learned from you. I mean, <laughs> you're good at this shit. Yeah. And, and honestly, by 1772, Grandpa Jim Bowie has 750 acres in South Carolina. The family farm, right? <clears throat> How do you it's think he's good. keeping up all that land, though, Jared? keeping up how do you think i mean he's not even keeping up he's just clearing it right that's a lot of land to clear in a little bit of time you got 750 acres how well, are you going to clear all that land well just him and about <laughs> probably 75 of his closest friends from africa <laughs> well they were yes they used slaves but they were never on that scale right oh okay i was gonna say how many big time planters but they usually had between like uh so, four and four and eight, four and six slaves in this. I grew up on a farm of about a thousand acres, and we had mm-hmm. like modern tractors and shit. Yeah, and that was too much work for like me and my dad, and my grandpa, and my little brother. I mean, right? That's a lot of work. Yeah, yeah. So, um, we'll we'll kind of explain the economics of slavery with relation to the Bowie family a little bit later on. But I just wanted to point that out like right away because it is a lot of work 750 acres your kids are only like four years old you know? i mean especially if you're trying to like clear whatever the hell right. clearing land means but like i mean you're chopping down timber by with like axes <clears throat> and saws you're usually like cutting it up into planks too you might be oh, milling yeah. it i'm just you're saying planting. It, would, 
it would take us like a few weeks to plant stuff in the spring. Right. And it would take us a few weeks to combine all of it. Right. And in the summertime, we'd be out in the pastures and the timber, like cutting down trees and stuff. And we had like Mm -hmm. chainsaws and tractors and stuff like that. So. Right. Yeah. I mean, and and, and they didn't, right? And like modern healthcare. What they had was, you know, disposable human beings held in chattel slavery, right? Yeah. Um, people from Africa, by and large. 700 so, acres is a pretty good chunk of land. That's a huge chunk of land, for sure. I mean, Jared has three acres of land, and he can barely keep up with, like, his six fruit trees from all the deer that keep eating them. Well, they haven't <laughs> touched the fruit trees yet, to their credit. Oh, good. All right. Um I am figuring out that deer apparently love white oak. They'll tolerate red oak and uh, they don't really care for shell bark hickory. I see. You're really getting a good study of the dietary habits of deer out at compost acres. Know thy enemy, right? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Was it you that I said that? I'm literally becoming like a deer fascist now. (laughs) I just want him dead. (laughs) Uh, Well... Um, all right. So <laughs> they're threatening my homeland. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll, we'll get the take on, uh, sapling production from the Bowie family a little bit later on. <laughs> In 1776, the American revolution kicks off and the Bowie family is pretty much right from the get go on the side of the revolutionaries, which is kind of a tradition they'll continue in hindsight being 2020. So the two boys are only 13 years old in 1776, but their father, well, you know, that's definitely old enough to be shouldering a rifle. Well, they grow into the conflict. And by 1779, when they're 16 years old, they're actually both involved as is their father, Jim Bowie senior. So, uh, the brother resin Bowie, uh, actually is, injured in action in an attack on British held Savannah, Georgia in 1779. And basically he like tries to parry like a saber slash, like a sword with his hand and basically like, you know, slices his hand clean open. And that's like a potentially fatal wound back then. Oh, totally. Like it's amazing that he didn't lose, lose his hand. Right. It's probably worse than getting shot back then. I mean, honestly, he was probably lucky that he ended up in, like, a British hospital camp, prison camp. You know, he probably got better care there. Oh, yeah. And So he he was an injured POW. Well, he was being taken care of by a very comely and intelligent. Davis makes a big deal about this, how how wicked smart this broad is. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Is he from Boston? (laughs) Or did you watch The Departed recently or something? What I just don't know happened? why I said that. <laughs> I mean, he just, smart, like, huh? he just goes on and on about it, okay? Well, he's in, he's in Georgia, though, or something, right? He's not even he's in, like, like... He's from California, yeah. <laughs> but, no, I mean, um, I mean Resin Bowie when this happens. Yeah. He's like... This is in Georgia. <laughs> okay, it's not even in the Northeast. <laughs> no. All right, I don't know what just happened, well, but I loved that. And, um, and, and the lady the highly intelligent young nurse. She's Welsh. She's actually an immigrant from Wales. Okay. Her name is Elva Ap Catesby. 
So basically, Rezin falls in love with her while she's tending to him in this hospital camp. And scarcely more than two years later, this is quoting from Davis, with the war not yet over, they married. And in 1784, after independence, his service earned him a grant of 287.5 acres in Washington County, where the couple began housekeeping. Is this in Georgia? This is in Georgia as well. But Okay. Hey, good job in the war. Here's 300 acres of land. Yeah. <laughs> that's uh, that's pretty tight. Um, I yeah. <laughs> don't think the VA is doing that anymore. No, I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, it's just so funny, though. Like, land is like, that's literally such, like a, <laughs> such a available commodity. That's literally like the libertarian dream, though. You get, like, wounded in a conflict, and then you get... A lady and a bunch of land. And and this is the thing. This didn't even exist in Europe at this time, right? When we talk about the development of the material forces of production and modes of human labor, like, this is why America is so fucking recalcitrant and behind everywhere else, I feel like. It's because of this bullshit. I think you mean this is why we are number one. <laughs> For now, <laughs> you just told me a, a love story, <laughs> senor. Well, it is kind of cute, right? Like the wounded soldier and his and his nurse. Yeah. All right, so we are like Davis. We're just getting in on the. Average, we totally are. That's the thing. The average man. person. I mean, we are. We are. I. That's what I. I wanted to make clear. We're kind of do. We're. We are a hundred percent doing the same thing that he is. So, but also, like his father, Rezin's aspiration grew with his family. And as he had more and more kids, he got more and more land. Okay? But a little bit different than his father. Gotta put those little fuckers to work, you know? Well, this is this is why it's a little bit different, okay? Because Rezin had this habit of developing some land and then moving to another piece of land and selling off what he had developed. So... This is, uh, yeah, about Rezin, Rezin Bowie, Jim Bowie's father. With his family growing, the father, Rezin, acquired another 640 acres on Station Camp Creek, two months after his new son's birth. But after another two months, he sold it all and decided to move 30 miles north across the Kentucky line to Logan County. There with his wife, four children, five horses and three black slaves, he settled 200 acres on Terrapin Creek. Okay. So, so he's, he's got more, uh, he's got more, like, equipment, but he has less land now. Right. He's got more equipment, he's got less land, but he's still, he's, like, growing his capital, and he keeps, like, moving a little bit ahead of the curve <clears throat> of settlement, right? He well, kind of keeps... Moving... He's moved from Georgia up into Kentucky now, too, which I feel like right. is a huge step up. Yeah, I mean, for sure. Having been um, to both places, <laughs> anyway. Like I said, he's staying a little bit ahead of the... He wants to be in the wilderness, right? He doesn't want to be, like, in a developed area. He wants yeah. to have that frontier experience of being one of the people clearing the land and uh, dealing with dealing with the consequences of it, right? Like... He's basically a, one of the first footmen of Manifest Destiny. Totally. This idea of like, you know, all 
consuming drive for westward expansion well i mean maybe again quoting from davis the bowies did well in kentucky and it's so funny because every time they move somewhere else he's like they did well there they were successful there you know and yeah like these people work their fucking asses off and they also had slaves you know it was kind of a combination of the two so this is kind of about the economy of the bowie farm Within a year of landing in Logan, Kentucky, Rezin more than doubled his string of horses, including a breeding stud. There's a source of income, right? He acquired a small herd of 23 cattle and increased his slave holdings to eight to help work the property. He paid taxes, secured the surveys, and permission to build the inevitable mill, more money, on the creek, and before long, the wagon path crossing his property to the creek became known as Bowie's Mill Road. Elva had a third son there in the spring of 1796. Inevitably with the Bowie's, there had to be a James sooner or later. And this boy was the one. Jim Bowie was born. But I think I think that that's telling, though, that like whenever he moves somewhere else, he is like developing all of these sources of income and adding to his string of horses and cattle and people who are enslaved. Well, I mean, it doesn't exactly take a rocket scientist to figure that one out though. I mean, you know, it's not that difficult to breed cattle and horses. And I mean, if you've got the people to do the labor, it's not that hard to figure out like, Hey, all these people are going to be growing all these crops. I, better get a mill going before i gotta pay somebody else to mill my shit right but the thing is is that unlike all these other people resin Bowie keeps moving he never like just hangs around to enjoy the fruits of his labor and well he's like a project guy right like i can't help but kind of think of him as as like the canadian permaculture legacy dude from youtube yeah welcome back guys i just rolled out of bed and uh, today's going to be a busy day because yesterday we spent 14 hours digging holes and planting trees for our new um, expansion of the food forest. Today we have to sheet mulch that area because we didn't have any. Like, we didn't have cardboard. We like have he's just yet. always like about his project. And if the project stops, he's like, I have to get a new project. Yeah, I mean, I I feel like I'm sort of that way. I just don't have the time to like see most things through. Right. And and also for, for, you know, the Bowie family, every one of these transitions is bringing some growth. And it's interesting as well because he's not, like, leaving his brothers and sisters behind. Resin Bowie, Jim Bowie's dad, is, like, bringing the basically aunts and uncles, his brothers and sisters, with him every time they move. So it's kind of like a Beverly Hillbilly situation a little bit, too. Yeah. So... Things are going well for them, and they keep expanding and expanding and moving and moving, right? But I actually, I kind of wanted to mention this, like, we kind of compared ourselves a little bit. Like, my dad is a little bit this way, too. and He has this arcane job from the medieval era in that he trains horses, right? Something that should have stopped existing like 200 years ago, but just for the amusement of, you know, the classes, like, continues today. But I mean, it's probably like a more prestigious <laughs> job now than it used to be. Probably, I mean, definitely. Yeah. 
he went from he went from being just like a run of the mill Jiffy Lube employee to now he's like a NASCAR pit crew guy. <laughs> I mean, basically, yeah, yeah. I mean, he trains horses, but he's like seventy nine years old and he can't fucking stop doing this. Okay, because there's nothing that he loves more than like claiming some horse, like basically buying it cheap for like fifteen hundred bucks. Some broken down, stressed out race. Shit, I'm sure. I'm surprised it even costs that much anymore. I mean, it's a lot of them are even cheaper. I mean, it's it's a dying industry, definitely. But yeah, so there's nothing he loves more though than buying some you know broken down, washed up racehorse and putting all the love and devotion and care into it and training and you know time and his own attention and get it to like win some stakes race for twenty thousand dollars. But you know what? Never ever happens after that. He never just like retires the horse or keeps it or keeps racing it. He fucking sells it and then gets another washed up loser. What's the name of the game though? I mean, it is. Yeah. And, and that's what I think, you know, resin Bowie is, is doing here. Right. It's not, it's about the process, right? Like, cause he's a process guy. It's about the project. The project is interesting. Mm hmm. I think it's better your way, though, Jared, because I don't I'd like to believe that you're not just going to, like, improve compost acres and then sell it off to be a subdivision for a quarter million dollars. No, I guess I was more just saying in my like life in general, I'm always taking on more projects and different projects and new projects, I guess. Well, and what you're doing is kind of the opposite of what these guys are doing. You're taking degraded land and improving it. And they're basically taking perfect land and destroying it. Well, yeah, but I mean, if I was in like the 1700s. <laughs> yeah, you'd be clearing some prairie to plant your, your rutabagas. Yeah. I mean, I'd like to think that I'd probably be like one of those fur traders and trappers that was kind of like trading with the natives or whatever and using that type of stuff to my advantage but who knows yeah (laughs) based on my if like a genetic memory is anything based on what my family did uh you Mm -hmm. know maybe not yeah like you said i would love to go find some cheap land somewhere and just you know live on it and farm it what i probably wouldn't do is just like improve it and then buy some other piece somewhere else yeah. I don't know. Who knows? I mean, maybe once I got this place to where I thought it was good mm-hmm. and stuff, maybe I'd lose interest. I mean, maybe. I'm pretty good at losing interest in stuff after I figure it Ooh. out. <laughs> so this process we're describing, though, is something that paid out time and time again for the young Bowie family. As we said, Jim Bowie was born in 1796, but over the next two years... This area of Kentucky becomes more and more populous. They get that early land grant, but then more and more people start moving in next door and building cabins and running their fucking horses all over the place and making loud noises and sawing all the time. And Resin Bowie doesn't have his frontier wilderness experience anymore. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. I mean, <clears throat> are you sure he's doing it for all those reasons you just talked about? Or is he literally doing it? Because he wants to get the fuck away from all these white people. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> you know, six yeah, of one, half yeah. dozen of the other. <laughs> all right. Maybe maybe he's like a... This is like a... No, this is like a Twilight Zone episode where all he wants to do is live out in the wilderness without anybody around. But he's literally the person that's like out there making sure right. that that doesn't happen. 
I mean, that's it. That yeah, that's a you fucking nailed it again, man. Um, I knew you were gonna you were gonna like this episode because <laughs> that's all I want is to fucking get the hell away from all these people. <laughs> but you know, I'm just hundred yeah. years late to the show, right? And if everybody goes and tries to do what I'm doing, well, then it'll all be fucked anyway. Because yeah, <laughs> well, resin buoy senior. Papa Resin is enticed by the opportunity of New Spain, which in 1798 was basically the Louisiana Purchase. Due to the Bourbon reforms, what was once French Louisiana territory was now held by Spain. It wouldn't pass back to France until like 1800 before it was promptly sold off by Napoleon, right? But this was New Spain right now. And quoting from William C. Jefferson Davis. There were already stories of wonderful new lands to be had, just for the asking. In 1795, the Treaty of San Lorenzo adjusted major differences between the United States and Spain, and the Spaniards, who owned the vast Louisiana territory west of the Mississippi River, decided to invite American settlers into the region. The very year of James Bowie's birth, they distributed handbills throughout the Ohio River Valley settlements, offering liberal grants and no taxes to those who would come to their part of the new world. The only requirement was that settlers convert to Catholicism. I mean... Hell yeah, right? Yeah, who gives a shit? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the Bowie's were a religious family. They were Presbyterian on uh, Resin's part and it's Methodist on Elva's part. But yeah, they were just like, hell yes liberal land grants and no taxes yeah i mean like that's how you get resin buoy now i'm what like not even really paying any type of tax to the pope you're right you just have to be a Catholic. who gives a shit just like say i'm a Catholic. my 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 how the immigration relations have switched between (laughs) in all these areas good lord So, um, a lot of people, and actually... So, okay, why why did Spain do that? They just didn't have any people from Spain that wanted this place, or like... I mean, honestly, they were looking at what was happening in America and saying, if we don't have people here, then we lose our right it's to gonna this happen because anyway. Americans will just come in. So, at least have them come in and say, we're, we're Spanish citizens now. Which, I mean, as you said, it's going to happen anyway, but they were under the impression that they could delay So Spain just, it. like, literally didn't have the people to do it. Right. By 1795, Spain is, like, on the dying end of its world empire, right? It literally can't distribute resources effectively to all the places it controls. It still controls most of South America, the Caribbean, the philippines parts of africa well i mean i i don't know why didn't they just like cut and run in the philippines and africa and be like fuck this let's get down to there just weren't many people in in this part of the world and they had only gotten it through you know negotiations with france a little while before then anyway it is funny though that resin buoy jim buoy's father went to new spain and jim buoy would go to mexico a bunch of people basically were enticed from kentucky the southern united states to move into the louisiana territory at the behest of new spain people like daniel boone were actually some of those who like moved to new spain and became citizens and 
helped to bring people in. They were called impresarios because they would impress people, right? In both senses of the word. So we get a nice little quote from Tocqueville here about this. A generation later, Tocqueville marveled at the Exodus. And when he says a generation later, he means like the 1850s. At the end of the last century... Right. (laughs) (laughs) At the end of the last century, a few bold adventurers began to penetrate into the Mississippi Valley, he wrote. It was like a new discovery of America. Oh, yeah. Soon, most of those who were immigrating went there. Previously unheard of communities suddenly sprang up in the wilderness. And there, one could find what he called democracy in its most extreme form. So he doesn't like it then? What? (laughs) But he's right, though. Like, every time America expands westward, it's just like another settlement of America. Like, not only do all of the... You know, people with nothing just go there to get a bunch of free capital in the form of land. Also, all of the new settled, all of the new immigrants to America from Europe just start going out there too. Well, yeah, why wouldn't you? Exactly. What are you going to do? Be a beggar in fucking Long Island? You just select a plot, cut down some trees, and claim your three hundred acres. Yeah, and your family's wealthy for generations. I'd be after doing that, that right like, now what? if I could. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Did most of these people even know that there was, like, anybody in these areas? Or were they literally just like, I don't know, I mean, I've been a fucking, I've been dirt poor my entire life. I'm right. 26. I'm the oldest person in my family. The yeah. oldest living person at 26. And now, <laughs> like, I'm going to just have more land than I've ever even considered before. For well, nothing. Quoting from Davis. In those new lands... In some sense, improvisations of fortune. The inhabitants have arrived only yesterday in the land where they dwell. They hardly know one another, and each man is ignorant of his nearest neighbor's history. And you know Rezin fucking loves that shit, right? Like, that's that's the frontier that everybody keeps singing about. Yeah. I mean, it would be an exciting place. You just show up in a place where you don't really know anybody, and... Mm-hmm. You have seemingly endless resources, and you can pretty much do whatever the fuck you want. Yeah. You know? And so that that's what Resin does. In February of 1800, he sells off his Kentucky property, which is like 400 acres by this point, packs up his whole family, and heads to New Spain. So yeah, what a and... deal. You get to sell all of this <laughs> land to somebody, and then go right. get free land. I mean that's and that then you invest that money yeah. into more slaves. Why the hell was anyone even buying that horses. place from him? Why weren't they just like <laughs> fuck you? I'm going to New Spain. I think it was like they're the lazy people, right? Like they don't want to have to like build the mill and do all that shit. Yeah, I know? suppose. And he's a process guy, right? Like he's just like I gotta go. Someone's gonna buy it. But yeah, so. Um, they actually go across Kentucky to the Ohio River. <laughs> they just didn't and... have, like, Adderall back then, but they had, like, <laughs> squatting and land speculation, and that was, that yeah, was the I mean, same that's thing. that's how everyone got their face. <laughs> 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 All these industrious people just had ADD and, like... <laughs> <laughs> 
go and chop down trees and dig holes. Hey, dude. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they actually briefly settled in on the Ohio River on the other side of Kentucky for like two months. They thought they liked the place, and then they were like, nah, let's keep going to New Spain like our original plan. Yeah, well, they literally know they can do it. They've done it how many times now? <laughs> right. <laughs> so they go, they go down the Ohio River to the Mississippi River, and they settle near the confluence of the Mississippi and Ohio River near modern New Madrid, Missouri. And they settle on this, this place called Tiwapiti Bottom, which is a broad alluvial plain. And I know Jared, Mr. Farmer over there, he, he hears alluvial plain oh, yeah. and he gets a little bit excited. Set me up. Yeah. You want to explain what an alluvial plain is? Uh, I mean, it's basically where all of the sediment and stuff gets deposited every spring when the river right. floods. Yeah. It's, uh, and flood after flood. Yeah, it's probably, it's probably where uh, a lot of the Native Americans were farming. Yeah, totally. I mean, before they were, you know, knocked yeah, back by like smallpox totally. and, um, you know, the French and Indian <clears throat> Wars and uh, the War of 1812 and everything. Although that would be in the future at this yeah. point. Uh, before um, the Green Revolution, the alluvial plain was literally the best farmland you could find. Totally. 100%. Now it's some of the worst because it's been so tapped out. Yep. But yeah, so they selected a plot. They found a place to squat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh man can you just imagine like how beautiful that must have been when they first got there i mean the original forest and the the wetlands it would be fucking amazing yeah i really i can't even imagine what it looks like it's been so destroyed and no cut banks yeah just springs and seeps all over the place yeah so they they selected some a plot. <laughs> nobody had and resin. Nobody had just like dumped a bunch of cars and like paint cans and shit <laughs> anywhere to like stabilize the banks of anything. Well, don't worry because they're about to improve the oh, land. Good Lord. <laughs> <laughs> resin promptly cleared fifty acres, started planting turnips and about eight hundred fruit tree saplings. Oh God. <laughs> don't ever plant fruit it's, trees folks <laughs> it's a bad idea he's like destroying all of this, this like cottonwood and cypress forest and then he's putting in like pears and plums and apples and uh, you know i was gonna make a joke i was gonna say you know as, as jerry knows you plums. have to plant 800 yeah european plums not the good plum um but yeah, you have to plant 800 because deer are going to eat about 795 of yeah. them. Yeah. <laughs> I'm convinced that deer do not like plums because they have not messed with mine. But All right. most other types of trees that I've planted now, if they haven't completely destroyed them, they've definitely given a nibble to them. Yeah. Well, after doing all this... Resin Bowie applied for his formal concession and was granted 300 acres. And he's got it. And he eventually would get another 300 acres adjacent. How do you not get your concession? Like, do you literally just... You have to really you just like, up. like have to not be able to read, basically? 
I don't I don't know, man. It seems like it'd be a hard thing to do. <laughs> so they would actually stay here for about two years, okay? Which is about the norm. It's pretty for long for them. At this point. <laughs> yeah. Last place they were there for like the last couple places they were there for like two months. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um so this is where Jim Bowie will be from like ages four to six. And basically he spent this formative time in his life just wandering the forest and playing with his siblings. He has uh, a couple of older brothers and several younger siblings now. And is basically just being educated at homeschool by his wicked smart mom. Sounds like a pretty rad childhood. I mean, yeah, he's he's too young to work. De- definitely dad will put him to work, you know, when he's old enough. But oh, yeah. for now, he's just like doing doing woods things you know hell yeah which i was lucky enough to spend like a small fraction of my childhood doing and yeah yeah, my favorite time in my childhood it's just when i was alone in the wilderness yeah when i was that young i was like (laughs) drinking out of mud puddles and (laughs) like playing in cow shit and stuff like that it was great yeah but unfortunately like everywhere else taiwa pity bottom eventually lost that frontier edge i wonder why uh <laughs> fuck can't because everybody's like cutting trees down and building mills and shit well that was definitely part of it but also in the ensuing time the louisiana territory had passed back into french ownership which was friendlier to americans okay wait so f- friendlier than new spain yeah yeah friendlier than so to what were they like paying people to take this land now well, this is the interesting thing. The French never, like, actually sent anybody there, right? Like, the people managing the land were still the ad- original administrators from New Spain. Okay. But they just, like, stayed in their posts and were just doing the same thing, but it's it's France's land now, basically. <laughs> okay. Well, no one called them back. <laughs> so everyone, like, knew how ridiculous this is, right? Well, and everyone was looking at the United States and saying, this is all going to be the United States before too long, right? Okay. So there's really no, like, we own this, but there's literally no reason for us to care about it. I mean, basically. Because yeah. we're just going to lose it eventually. Right. I respect that. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah, and, you know, basically people don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind is blowing. And... Resin is looking at other parts of the Louisiana Territory, and he's kind of coming to the understanding that, as he has been doing already, he's finally starting to put two and two together, that if he gets in on the ground floor in an area, say, near a big city like New Orleans, if he gets in on the ground floor, whoever's there first is going to be really successful as it develops more, right? Oh, yeah. And that's basically at the heart of speculation. You get there... You set up shop and then you sell your three acres of less, you know? I mean, you don't even really have to set up shop. I mean, yeah, you really you just don't. have to get there first. Yeah. Um, Play, I just saw a North Sioux today that uh, this, this piece of land, like alongside the interstate that has literally just been like an alfalfa field worthless. It fucking mm-hmm. floods like probably floods like three out of 10 years. Right. Uh, it's now being subdivided and they have like this huge sign, uh, this huge billboard up on the side of the interstate about like, you know, lots available. 
they have this fucking thing divided up into like the whole thing's probably like five acres but they got it all divided uh-huh. up into like 20 some lots <laughs> and they're just gonna sell it off to build houses on it and it's gonna like flood the year after it gets built probably. oh yeah dude uh you probably couldn't have given that place away 15 years ago right and uh yeah I don't know how the fuck they're going to handle like the hydrology of that area, but uh, that's that's the beauty of speculation. You don't have to worry about it because mm-hmm. you're going to sell it and it'll be someone well, yeah, else's who cares? problem. Exactly. Yeah. Somebody fuck buys it. these lots. Doesn't <laughs> fucking matter. I got my money. You bought it. You dumbass. <laughs> Some dumbass doesn't know what an alluvial bottom is. <laughs> it's going to buy this land. Oh <laughs> yeah. Let it out. <laughs> yeah, and it's literally like the lowest spot in North Sioux besides the lake. <laughs> so. Yeah. That's crazy. Well, yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> so in 1803, Resin takes the family again, 350 miles south on the Mississippi River, probably like on a on a big raft that he built out of trees, down to actual like what would become the state of Louisiana. <laughs> Did he have a guy named David Allen Coe Jim on the raft? With him? <laughs> I mean, every time they would move, like they probably were taking some slaves with them. They would probably sell off a few of their slaves, but the ones like the field slaves, you know, and I, I, I hate talking about this. It makes my skin crawl. But basically, then, like the people who were more instrumental to the work, workings of the household were probably taken with them. But honestly, there's not a whole lot about it in the literature. I like Davis makes it kind of clear that at times he's speculating. Well, I mean, you know, I feel like the field slaves are the lowest skilled laborers so i mean in, in a sense yeah they're probably the most replaceable yeah if you want um, if you want to think that way I, yeah i mean i think that's it you got to look at the raw the raw uh humanity of the situation which involves human labor you know like these people are working they are people and the situation is that you know they're basically only there because of these people who own them and so they get down to louisiana and they promptly do some squatting, get a land grant for 600 acres. Bing, bang, boom, right? You got a big family, you're squatting over there, 600 acres. <laughs> okay, like what is the raw acreage that they have just literally gotten for free? Like just for being there. I mean, it's in the thousands. <laughs> Dude, what the fuck? <laughs> So <laughs> there isn't like a thing where I mean they're what are they petitioning like wash and oh this is this is France right now right this is France right now yes okay yep so they're sending letters to like different people mm-hmm. it's not like the yeah. same guys like fuck dude this buoy guy you know it's been like it's been twelve years and this guy has gotten like I don't even know how many consignments now but like. Well, I mean, yeah, they're they're moving around though in this like different provinces of colonial administration, basically, and so um, yeah, now it's they're closer to New Orleans though. Man, I wonder what the buoys would have thought about like government handouts. They sure got a lot of them. Well, but they deserved them. <laughs> yeah, they improved all that land. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so once they get to Bushley Bayou in Louisiana, Resin promptly sets up his first whiskey distillery. Okay. That's another big source of income. Is this right? a new thing? This is a new thing. Did he pick yeah. that up in Kentucky? 
He might have. <laughs> he probably was doing it on a small scale. That, seems that was like a his very hobby Kentucky in, in Kentucky thing for him to be doing. But you got to consider that you know he's wheeling and dealing now. Well, he's wait got a, a minute, lot of though. Didn't whiskey fire. like function as currency sort of back then too? Well, it was something that was tangible as a side to all of this speculation that was going on. Because one thing we're going to see is that after you get all this land, it's kind of the source of your credit because you have land. And you could say, go to town, and you could be like, I need to buy, I don't know, like three oxen and 12 slaves. And they'd be like, I don't know if we'll, do you have any money? And you'd be like, no, but I have 600 acres up north. No, but I have stuff you can take from me. <laughs> and they'd be like, well, that's good enough. <laughs> yep. And that's how you build an economy on speculation. <laughs> And, you know, this never created any problems. I <laughs> literally don't see how it ever could. I think Tesla's worth all the money that it's currently valued at. I don't know if that much money exists, but yeah, me too. <laughs> but yeah, well, but like with whiskey, like you said, at least that's something that's tangible, right? It has, it has real use value and it exists in a physical form. As opposed to your credit, right? Well, I guess what I was saying, too, is sure, maybe they have slaves, but I'm pretty sure that somewhere I absorbed that it was pretty common practice that you would just, like, pay people in alcohol back then. Wouldn't be surprising. So, yeah. if you have a distillery, you you basically have, like, a money printer in effect a little bit. I mean, yeah, and so, Resin Bowie, he's wheeling and dealing now. He's maybe not like wealthy, like a you know big plantation owner, not but wealthy. he's definitely hustling. Dude's got six hundred free acres of land and an alcohol distillery. I mean, he's not an aristocrat. Okay, he's like a petty bourgeois. He wouldn't want to be an aristocrat anyway. No, because he loves the the yeah. you know thrill of the settlement, right? Aristocrats do not do what he does. But now, now he's getting into land speculation, which is definitely an aristocrat thing. Okay. And he's even selling land to his son. Resin Jr., at 15 years old, this is Jim Bowie's older brother, owns 640 acres. Wait, but he bought it from his dad? <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, he, quote, bought it from his dad because his dad just needed to get this land off of his books or something. Oh, okay. So he gave it to him. I mean, he basically gave it to him, but now he had, like, a promissory note credit from his son for the land that then he could in turn go and use as credit somewhere else, right? So he's like, I sold this this land to my son who paid me, you know, however many thousands of dollars for it. Whether or not he did is irrelevant because those are added to your accounts and all the stores and with, you know, the 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 society at large, right? Sure. I mean, it's it's a totally a scam, but all of this is a scam. Because I mean, remember with economics, right? It's all it's all bullshit. Except for the slavery part. That fucking sucked. So, basically, Re Resin Sr. has lots of wealth via credit, but a shortage of hard currency. He's, uh, what do they call it? Land poor. He's land rich, but cash poor. I, God, I can't remember the... There used to be like a saying when I was growing up, like all the farmers would use it where like, you know, you got a bunch of equipment and you got a bunch of land right. and your house and shit, but you don't have any fucking money. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Or like house poor or something like that, they called it. Right. Yeah, so in 1809, they moved yet again. <laughs> All right. um, and with that, I need to pause for the first okay. time. <laughs> the record seems to be just skipping and repeating. Oh, man. Okay, so I just figured out that we are like literally doing this exact same thing with semi-trailers. Oh, no. Right now. <laughs> Um, cause my boss kept like buying all these really shitty trailers. Uh huh. Um, and you know, the more trailers we have, like, even if they're completely leveraged, that's still like more equipment that we have. Right. So we can use that to get credit to buy more of them. <laughs> so he's been doing that and, yeah. uh, like, I cannot find enough work to put all these trailers to use, but what I did right. find is this other company that wanted to rent a bunch of trailers from us. So now we buy these trailers, and they suck, and I get them running again, which basically usually consists of, like, me putting, like, an alternator and a battery or maybe, like, a starter or some belts and shit on it, <laughs> and, uh, like, cleaning out a fuel tank and putting like decals and shit on it uh-huh and then we turn around and <laughs> get it cleaned up real nice <laughs> yeah totally and then we turn around and rent it to this other company and uh yeah i don't know we're like i don't even know that we're like breaking even on the main business but we're making a little bit of money now like renting <laughs> out semis and trailers wow it's a, just a ritual as old as time I mean, yeah, <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't really think of it like speculation exactly, but I think my boss sort of like backed me into now we speculate on semi-trailers. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Well, <laughs> uh, I'd sold two of them like a week ago Yeah, from like about 5,000 more than we bought and spent fixing it up mm -hmm. and now that's just telling him that he needs to continue doing this right yeah and that's part of what's driving me so insane is that i'm just like trying to keep these trailers running at the same time as i'm trying to keep mm -hmm. everything else running your your boss would be scraping the pipe for resin man He'd definitely be doing <sighs> i feel that. like that's what we're doing because some of them are <laughs> awful all right let's let's continue <laughs> The more things change, the more they stay the same, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, dude, it's the, this is this story is pure compost for sure. So, yeah, they moved yet again. This time south to Opelousas near New Orleans. And by now, Resin Senior, he's a businessman. He's got interests. Primarily, he's involved in a few different industries. Okay, he's got the timber cutting operation going on. As he buys more land, he clears it and sells the timber for money. Then he's got cotton farming going on. That's, you know, with the slaves and all that stuff. And then he's got his whiskey distilling business. And finally, he's selling the land that he's clearing. Like after he, you know, clears the timber, gets a good crop of cotton off of it, he sells that shit, right? So he's really wheeling and dealing. And through these years... 
Resin Jr. and Jim are kind of watching their father and working with him and learning the business, right? But critically, they're kind of learning more as he's already been wealthy and successful, right? They were too young. They don't really remember all the, like, hard scrabble, you know, like, develop and move and develop and move type stuff, right? But also, they're really tight. They're super tight. You kind of have a Dukes of Hazard situation with Resin Jr. and his younger brother, Jim. They're basically spending all their time, they're not working together, hunting and fishing and hanging out in the woods. So, it's it's a little bit wholesome. And, you know, they're still learning from their wicked smart mom, but from their dad, they're getting a couple of primary lessons. Did you ever mention their mom's name? Yeah, Elva App Catesby. Elva. Yep, Mama Elva. So, basically, they were learning about the land speculation business, and they were learning that squatters would sometimes get in the way of your land speculation. If you were given some large grant and Wait, you found what? a few people, well, this is the this is the problem, right? <laughs> <clears throat> you know, someone else might be selecting a plot, but they might select a plot on some land that you already own through your land speculation dealings. Okay. So what happens when one person's like, "Well, I I selected this plot." You call your like, dad and tell him to get the fuck off. This is my land, and he'll be like, "I've been doing this for forty years." <laughs> Well, yeah, they had to, like, run off some squatters a few times. Basically, they're kind of exposed to land conflict, right? That there are some people already... And this is also a thing in Red Dead 2. Yeah, hey, you John fuckers, you can't there. be doing the thing that I'm trying to do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a piece of paper that says that I own it. So, you guys are just happen to be living here. So, fuck off. <laughs> All right, then the other really important lesson they learned was about slavery. And I'm going to, I actually think, you know, William Jefferson Davis is not far off the mark here. Okay. I'll, I'll read a lengthy quote. William C. Jefferson William Davis. William C. Davis. Thank you. <clears throat> the boys also learned about life with slavery. Their grandfather, John, owned a few, and certainly so did their father, Resin. Though hardly planters on even a modest scale, the Bowies still worked enough land that they needed a few field hands. Moreover, Resin's timber-cutting enterprise required substantial cheap labor. Typically, for land owned by small farmer slaveholders, Bowie plantations enjoyed benign, even familial relations between blacks and whites. There certainly were for Uncle Reza, who never married but who fathered a son named James by a slave mistress, mistress sometime around 1790, and thereafter openly acknowledged him, gave him his freedom and the family name, and brought him to Louisiana with the rest of the clan. The black James Bowie Oof. remained in... <laughs> I know. The word choice there. I know. <laughs> <laughs> The other James Bowie, I'll correct William Jefferson also Davis. Also part on of that the clan, one. right? The other James <laughs> Bowie. No, no, no. This is this is the James Bowie who happened to be black. 
remained in Catahoula when the rest moved south. For years to come, he steadily did land and loan business with both Johns, senior and junior, even buying and selling slaves himself and achieved some minor position in the community near Sicily Island. So, jumping ahead a little bit. So he was like the Buttigieg of Friedman? Well, I think, you know, it's kind of funny that, like, Je- Jeff Davis here is kind of saying, like, like oh, but look, even yeah. even ex-slaves could own slaves. Even my it black was, friend has slaves. <laughs> yes, I know. Like, what, what are you trying to get out of here, Jeff Davis? Yeah, it's Pete Buttigieg. Right. Even my gay friend is an imperialist. <laughs> In later years, the family remembered as well stories of resins. Stories of Resin's young J. Okay, so stories of Jim Bowie's closeness to an old slave woman named Mandy, of the little kindnesses he did for her, and of the advice she passed on to the boy. So Jim Bowie did kind of have like a close matronly figure, you know, who happened to be a slave in the household, who probably was was with them her whole life. Like it's it's hard to like be honest about the the facts of human relationships when they're struck against an economic background. I even feel that in my job that it's like hard to form there's because of the economic coercion involved. There's always this element of like awkwardness and human inter you know, interhuman relations. I have to imagine that's there, but at the same time, these people are people and they're living together and working together all the time. Like attachments and fondnesses and friendships and even love are going to develop, even if it is between a, you know, a master and their slave or whatever. I mean, certainly there's all kinds of, you know, negative stuff, too. Well, and I mean, things are going pretty well for this family. And like you said, it's not like they're planters, so. Right. You know, their slaves probably did get treated a lot better than, like, planters. And they were out there doing the work with them. Yeah, and it doesn't sound like they were really getting crunched economically either, so. Right, yeah. They were probably relatively okay people to be a slave for. Yeah, and later on, as we'll find out, when Jim Bowie like owns slaves himself, he himself he's basically just putting them in charge of things. He's like, I'm going to go out and do my normal fun stuff and hunt yeah. and party. So you guys just make th- make sure things go okay around here. Yeah, you know, just do all the work. I'm going to go have fun. Right, and, and like if Jared's job amounted to that, it would probably be a lot easier. <laughs> I, you know, probably honestly. <laughs> But yeah, so still though, and Jeff Je- William C. Davis points out, there was never any question that the Bowie slaves were property though, and with the exception of a few favorites like Old Mandy, they were usually sold with the land whenever a Bowie moved on. So he was he was decent to him, but he definitely didn't get attached. Right. There's more of you guys where the where you came from. Right. He took Old Mandy with him though. Yeah. Yep. So the Bowie boys are learning the family business through their teen years, but they're separated, Jared. Bo and Duke are separated. Because Duke goes off to war. In 1812, Rezin Jr. leaves home to join none other than the Gutierrez-McGee expedition into New Spain, the filibustering expedition we covered on episode four of forget about no episode three of forget about the alamo lo-fi texas history he was actually along on that expedition all through the siege of um, the fortress at goliad and during the first capture of san antonio de bejar 
But you'll recall from that episode that after Gutierrez captured San Antonio, he executed two Spanish governors there, leading many discontent followers of American origin to, including Samuel Kemper, their leader, to basically go back to Louisiana. And it seems that that is when Rezin Jr. Bowie abandoned the Gutierrez-McGee expedition, which is why he wasn't slaughtered with the rest of them um, a few months later. Best decision he ever made. Probably. I mean, could you imagine to be him like after he gets back and he hears about that shit? He's like, oh, they all died? (laughs) Hot damn. (laughs) Glad I came back to Louisiana. (laughs) He was probably like, what the fuck? (laughs) <laughs> I didn't realize that was a thing that could happen. Right. So he was an, he was a 19 year old looking for adventure, and he definitely you know found it. They had a lot of shit happen to them even before making it to San Antonio. But Jim Bowie is only 16, and he stays at home. However, the Bros are reunited in 1814, just in time for them to enlist together to join Andrew Jackson in the defense of New Orleans. Wait, you know. This is how many months after everyone else got massacred, though? This is... So that happened in, like, late 1813, and this was, like, during... In 1814. So this okay. would have been, like, you know, nine, ten months afterwards, I think. So the brother you know. wasn't, like, that moved by what happened to his No, I don't think so. No. I think he was, like... I mean, like, they left, you know? Like, they were like, fuck you guys, we're out of here. He's probably <laughs> just like, yeah, they all died because I wasn't there. <laughs> probably. Next battle I'm in, people better watch out. I'm going to fuck some shit up. Well, I will say, though, Resin Jr.'s out there fighting the fucking Spanish uh, well, well, Davy Crockett is massacring Native Americans in their sleep. And um, then when they get back together, Resin Jr. and Jim decide to enlist together to defend new Orleans, which of course we remember Davy Crockett hired a boy to go do for him. So this is, you know, at least, yeah, they've, they want to, they want to do shit. They're definitely a lot braver than Davy Crockett. I'll give for them sure. That. Yeah. Yeah. So actually the day they enlist in the military, I, I mean, I don't even care for new Orleans. Like, uh, I can get gumbo anywhere. So I don't Yeah, know. plus isn't that shit like east of us? We're trying to move west. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, they're living in in New Orleans, they're living in Louisiana, they're around there and it's like their their home turf and they're like, "Hell yeah, let's get in on some on some action because you know, these guys are, you know, Wait, no, you say because why? Because like I mean, you got to just think about it, right? Like They were like American citizens and then they were like new spanish citizens and then they were like part of france and now they're they're gonna like american again american and they're gonna fight the french i mean they're gonna fight the english they're gonna fight the english but even then i mean why well remember grandpa jim fought the english in the revolutionary war right okay and you know also you gotta just like think about it like these are good old boys you know like they've spent they're they're 19 and like 18 year old i mean sure i'm just saying like based on what has happened like why would you even care about like what country is going to come and be in charge there was this feeling that they were getting in on something right like this was some generational defining moment and here are the british back to threaten their homes you know in louisiana i mean sure but are they moved so hard and done so much like if the british win we know that in retrospect. But Not even them, in retrospect. I mean, like, literally, if you were a contemporary of this yeah. time. I, I'm just saying, though, you remember that 
Andrew Jackson is a bit of a celebrity, though. And all those people who volunteered to go out with... Uh, I'm to just go saying, starve I'm in the kind of starting to them. think that these Bowie boys are kind of rubes a little bit. I mean, they totally are. Yeah, we're going to see... They're 100% rubes. Yes. They oh, have not gotten shit. street So they're going to be awesome at con- being con men, then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you just figured it out. Aren't they? Oh, my <laughs> God. Okay. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> so yeah they got conned in i mean they they thought they were going to be part of something but actually See, this is why I'll, I'll never be a buoy because i'll be fucking sitting there and i'll be like i don't care if the english win what are they going to do yeah. come kill me and get me out no no let's no. be paying taxes to a different person right so they're too late they enlist literally on the day of the battle they sign up they <laughs> actually sign in okay so never mind they just miss this this kicks ass now but so what, what they actually end up doing is spending about three months in the army, just hanging out around New Orleans. Yeah, and they get to like lament <laughs> the fact that they weren't at this battle. Yeah, yeah, and talk about how like, oh, if I, I would have been there, we would have kicked their ass even yeah, harder. If I would have been there, <laughs> the king would fucking know my name. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, they're they're hanging around the big city though, and like the Bowie brothers are getting some culture. And when they get out on the 31st of March, 1815, they both get $21.93 payment for their service. For just hanging out? Yeah. Okay, well, this rocks. <laughs> I mean, yeah, <laughs> it's kind of a dude's rock kind of story, totally. like I said. <laughs> you been getting fed for free? You get to check out New Orleans and they pay you at the end of it? You didn't have to yeah. die? <laughs> yeah. All right, dude, the military is starting to sound kind of cool. All right, well... Unfortunately, there was no longer a need. See, back then, we didn't have this standing army thing, right? You were just kind of in as necessary. Yeah. And then they were done with you, and they were like, well, fuck off. Yeah, like, fuck you. You're eating our food. Get out of here. Yeah. So, in 1815, Jim Bowie leaves the military. He's 19 years old, and he heads home to, what, the fucking family timber business? His older brother had actually gotten married in the intervening time. He started to have a family. Dude's got a maid. He's a fucking veteran. He's got uh, Old Mary, or what was that lady's name? Mandy. Old Mandy. He's got Old Mandy. Well, she's Mandy. still with Dad, but I mean, well, yeah, he I could. Mean, I mean, he could go home. He You're can right. correspond with her, though. <clears throat> so I mean, yeah, he's like basically thinking like, well, he's 19 years old. He's just gonna. He's been in New Orleans. Is he just gonna like go back to rural life with his pa? Hell and no, just, like, dude. He's got 21 dollars in his pocket. And you know what he can do? He Fucking can do squat. some squatting. He can do some fucking Hell squats, yeah. man. <laughs> I've watched the old man do this enough times. Right. That dude's wrong all the time. He ain't smarter than me. I'm going to go squat on 900 acres of land. Well, I'll describe a little bit Jim Bowie at this time so we can start to imagine him a little bit better. All right. <clears throat> Before you describe him. Yes. I, I'm just seeing, like, uh, I don't even know, like brad pitt in legends of the fall right now james Bowie was full grown to six feet or nearly so raw boned a stoutly built 180 pounds above his fair complexion sat sandy hair not quite red his deep set blue eyes the more pronounced because of his high cheekbones were so pale as to appear gray and sitting shadowed deep within their sockets, gave them a penetrating look, heightened by his manner of gazing directly into one another's eyes when speaking. 
Taken altogether, he was a very manly, fine-looking person, his brother John believed, and by many of the fair ones he was called handsome. Much more to the point at this juncture in his life, John saw that Brother James was young, proud, poor, and ambitious, without any rich family connections or influential fr- or influential friends to aid him in the battle of life. Say what? I mean, except for his dad, <laughs> all the slaves and money, right? I mean, the first part I get. What the fuck did he just say? Because I think you're telling me the wrong story. <laughs> well, um, are you sure? <laughs> are you sure what all, all you were telling me is true? But that's the thing. It's like what you said earlier on. You know, to them, all those, all that free land isn't a government handout, right? It's like I squatted on this land with the best of them and improved it. So it's mine by right. It's true. But even then, like, I feel like it's way more powerful for you to be like, my grandpa squatted on this to be like, I squatted on this. You know what I mean? (laughs) Bowie decided to go do some squatting, like we said. And the thing to understand about Louisiana at this time is that it's very, very thinly settled, even in like 1815. About 10% of the state of Louisiana was claimed in pre-existing Spanish grants. Because the government said, like, if you had a grant from New Spain or from France prior to that, like, that was valid and honored, you know? If you had the old Spanish title, it was yours. But 90% of the land in Louisiana was still public domain, which meant it was open for squatting. So you move in, you develop the land. So you're telling me he looked a little bit like this? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Jared just shows a picture of Brad Pitt from Legends of the <laughs> Can that be like the episode picture? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, all you need is a is a is a, you know, an axe and a rifle. You go out there and you squat on some land and start to develop it. You know, build a cabin, well, get some things going. And some suspenders, a sick hat, and a little yep. bit of swagger. It looks yeah. like <laughs> so Bowie picked some land and he started clearing and he started making money primarily by selling cypress and jared i've got a let's let's do another aside for trees hell yeah let's let's talk about the bald cypress let's talk taxodium disticum what is its uh sensitivity to ddt apparently it's a pretty hardy tree okay in fact Bald cypress can even grow in very cold areas. The only reason their range isn't broader is because the seedlings are wounded by the cold. But mature trees can take a, you know, something that would be a killing freeze for lots of other plants. All right. Well, I think uh, our national organism should be the bald cypress now instead of the bald eagle. Hell yeah. That would be awesome, dude. It's also interesting because it's a deciduous conifer. Oh, which means it's one of the few conifers that loses all their needles. In I thought the that was an oxymoron. Nope, it's bald cypress. Do it. So they're also a gymnosperm. They have they're they're not a true flowering plant. They're very ancient. So um, they've got cones and they're deciduous. Mm-hmm. And they're big. They get really big. Uh, they can grow up to 120 feet or about 40 meters tall. And up to two meters or six feet wide. Although the largest on record in the United States, the the, t- the biggest one is 145 feet tall. And the thickest one is 40 feet 
diameter breast height, which is a very fat tree. Oh, yeah. Interesting thing about bald cypress is that it has these knees. The roots, like, send up these little, like, well, like, knobs that pop up above the ground. All right, so are these, uh, are these those, like, awesome-looking swamp trees that, like, you think about when you think about, like, Louisiana bayous? That's it. That's the one. Okay. Yeah. Those Um, are deciduous. Yes. Okay. They are deciduous. So that's why, like, in a bunch of pictures, they look dead. They've just lost their years, their leaves Mm -hmm. for the year. Or their needles for the year. Just happen to be in wintertime. Yep. But they do have needles. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, they're a cypress. So they have kind of like those flat, scaly needles, you know, like cypress trees do. Juniper, I think, is in the same family. So, uh, yeah, they're a manicious plant, uh, which means that they have both male and female flowers on the same plant, Mm -hmm. not on the same flower. So they're the opposite of a nettle. Right, which is dioecious. That's right. And as I said, they can really grow in a variety of soil. They are basically like native all along the eastern coast of America, as far north as I think like Pennsylvania and all up the Mississippi Valley, like all the way into Missouri. So very widespread, very hardy tree, likes wet areas. They probably don't get nearly as big up there, though, do they? Well, they grow slower in the colder areas is the thing. But the oldest, and they're very long-lived, the oldest currently alive is 2,624 years old. And another interesting thing is that they preserve incredibly well. Their wood is super valuable because it's so water-resistant. like Could you just stop? (laughs) (laughs) You know what's going to (laughs) happen. How many of these 2,000-year-old cypresses exist? Is it like nine? (laughs) Probably. (laughs) It used to be like, well, Jim Bowie cut down. Well, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. I would imagine uh, maybe some individuals from a civilization that value different things maybe uh, wouldn't be cutting down these very old cypresses. Yeah. Uh, well this is the really this is the crazy thing i was going to tell you okay so they've actually found like bog preserved bald cypress trees from thousands of years ago that they can still dry out cut up and sell to market oh no (laughs) Um, that sounds like is there dude so get this this is just crazy Actually, in 2012, off the like coast of, off the Gulf Coast, somewhere like you know Louisiana, Mississippi, they found like 60 meters below sea level a huge, immaculately preserved bald cypress forest. Oh, like an entire forest that had just been flooded. An entire forest that had been flooded when, at the end of the last ice age, right. It had grown completely when, like, the Mississippi River, like, flew fucking two or three miles farther down into the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah, like, right around the time that humans were migrating over here from Russia. Exactly. Yeah, during, like, the last, you know, time of a connected Bering Strait, this bald cypress forest grew, and it was covered up by sediment and water and preserved. But then Hurricane Katrina, like, like, disturbed all the sediment around it. 
and it was discovered in 2012. You know, <laughs> at least these natural disasters are doing things like uncovering that and like That's the North cool. Alabama Bend and right. uh, stuff like yeah. that. But isn't that wild, though? I mean, yeah. What an amazing tree. What a like an amazing place to like be the person to discover. And what amazing yields. We're talking <laughs> from virgin stands, 100 to 200 cubic meters per hectare. And in some areas, over 1,000 cubic meters per hectare. That's, That's right. hardwood money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Bald Cypress brought to you by micro- Mycogen Seeds. <laughs> Great for building water resistant. <laughs> i mean yeah they built everything out of this shit get they your, built everything. get your snapback bald cypress hat you know like we talked about we talked about cottonwoods and how they're basically worthless for building anything yeah right it is totally the opposite with bald cypress 100 percent the opposite it's a fine straight grained wood you know what you did the picture thing earlier i'm gonna show you a picture of bald cypress all right, all right. This is probably going to be just as attractive as, like, 1995 Brad Pitt. Look at that beautiful grain. Look at that gorgeous, gorgeous piece of wood. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's a good-looking piece of wood there. We're talking about how (laughs) shitty it is that they're cut down, but at the same time, like we've been saying, if you had that piece of wood, mm -hmm, you'd be, like, putting that on the lathe. You'd be making something out of that, right? It's mighty fine. Yeah. So Jim Bowie's making a lot of money as he's clearing out all this bald cypress. (laughs) And he's able to put together, by 1817, he's able to put together $300 cash to purchase the land from its original claim holder because he was squatting on someone else's land. Wait, what? (laughs) Wasn't he just complaining about this? Yeah, he was running other squatters off. So it's not even like, like... (laughs) the squatting thing is like not even dude it's like uh it's like if there's one of those homeless dudes like at an intersection with the sign yeah and uh you yell at him and he just comes over and buys your car from you (laughs) (laughs) it's like that right (laughs) so he puts together 300 dollars cash to purchase the land from the claim holder and he writes a 1700 dollars note to his father to buy a family of slaves. Oh, a family of four slaves. An entire family, huh? Now, you know that $1,700 loan that his father basically just gave him? Uh, isn't that like the same amount that Joe Biden gave a family of four? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, because of inflation, that would have been like probably like 100 or $200 in that time. Okay. So we didn't even get that. <laughs> yeah, so boy, that's uh we're going to see how But I'm that, just saying that. <laughs> we're going to see how that joke ages. You know that uh that's oh, I did it with a small loan for my father thing, like that's the $1700 note that I did it with a small purchase from my father. Right. But also, you know, that's like one of those times when you ask your parents for money and you're like, "Oh, I'm going to pay it back." And they're like, "You both know you're not going to pay it back." Right, Jim Bowie's not going to pay back this seventeen hundred. I might have done that once or twice. I definitely did that <laughs> many times. So 
<laughs> so yeah, he's he's taking advantage of My some generational is still wealth. With me that I never paid him back the thousand dollars he gave me for textbooks. <laughs> but I was kind of just like, "Fuck you, Grandpa!" I've been working my whole life. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, it's my turn for generational wealth, yeah. Grandpa. It's like on. I'm gonna go have fun this summer. Yeah, because I don't have to work. It's gonna be awesome. Yeah, he only got it because he exploited yeah. other people. You were wrong, Grandpa. College rocks. <laughs> <laughs> Bowie buys more land. <clears throat> but, as I said, all or most of these transactions involved promissory notes rather than hard cash in payment. Bowie was clearly learning that an enterprising man willing to take risks could acquire property with little more than his word, trusting that the returns from exploiting the land would provide the cash to meet the notes. It was the beginning of speculation, the lesson not slow in impressing him. So wait, he just like comes up with this? He's just learning it from other people who are doing it to him, kind of, right? But I mean, this didn't exist before he starts doing it? Other people were doing it at the same time. I mean, it is, it's kind of the same process that their family's been doing, right? Yeah, but I feel like his dad wasn't like, like he didn't just come out and say it like this. Right. But the whole thing is that it's not built on actual currency. It's just built on credit, right? Right. And, and so, you know, I don't know. I don't know if this is going to make any sense to anyone out there, but all this speculation can actually like cause like a bubble in the economy. Well, yeah, totally. I'm going to, I was going to say like. And the thing is, is that like that bubble can burst, which I'm is totally not going to happen with Tesla. I mean, that's just not going to happen. You know, I know we've talked about this before. I don't think but... it can burst anymore, but <laughs> because of the the I'm just saying, like, is right? is uh, is Bowie like the first one to do this, or like the most well documented person to do this? Well, he's definitely not the first, and he, I mean, this is just him getting started, dude. Okay. Just, oh, I'm not saying wait. right now. I'm saying like eventually here. <laughs> yeah, eventually, yes. But other people have been doing this the whole time. Remember, like uh, we talked about it with Davy Crockett and his ancestors. You know, they bought some land from a speculator, and they were long gone before you know the indigenous people came and got mad at them. Right. Okay. So, I'm just saying, is he like the cutting edge of this? Like he's getting, he's going to take it to a whole. New he's level. getting like the furthest west the quickest now. He's going to, like, what do you call it when, like, you ascend, like, a level of game. Like, there's there's people who play the game. Oh, he's going to break the mold. He's going to break the mold. He's going to be yeah, the goat. That's what like, I'm asking, like. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So he's, like, the... Jim Bowie is going to be, like, the ultra mm-hmm. speculator. We'll get there, yes. Okay. So he's buying more land, but in a lot, but a lot of it's on a handshake and a promise. And, you know, he's got some slaves, but meanwhile, he's a young man. And, frankly, he's spending a lot of his time just still hunting and fishing and trapping and all this land that he owns. Yeah, he's wasting a bunch of time, it sounds like. For sure. I mean, he's out there having fun, right? Like, he worked his ass off for his dad his whole teenage years. Now he's squatted. He's got some land. He's cleared out some of it. He's going to fucking enjoy himself, right? This uh, doesn't sound relatable <laughs> to me at all. <laughs> Uh, he's also <laughs> starting. Famously, Jim Bowie was a uh, very good with a with a rope. He would rope wild horses. He would rope deer, like with a lasso. And he would even rope alligators. 
was said to have ridden one or two. All right. I feel like roping an alligator is way easier than the other two. Uh, probably. Yeah. <laughs> well, you got to get under their chin, though. You know, that's got to be tough. I mean, maybe it's just because I watched a lot of Crocodile Hunter growing up, but yeah. like, they don't seem like they move that quickly. He also um, does some bear murdering in this really kind of grisly way, where basically he would take... Uh, <laughs> okay. He would basically you'd take like the knee of a bald cypress tree, this big knob, and he would hollow it out, and he'd put a bunch of honey at the bottom of it. But then he would drive nails backward into it, and a bear would come along and stick its snout in there, and looking for the honey, and get caught in the nails, and it would be like held there until Bowie would just like come up and execute it with his rifle. So he invented trapping too. I mean, this is like Jim Bowie style trapping. Like this is some like nefarious. I mean, all trapping is pretty nefarious, I guess. But I feel bad for the bears. Yeah, I was going to say, name like a type of trap that is humane. Yeah, right. trapping's fucked. That's why I don't do it anymore. But also, um, Bowie liked to party. He spent a lot of time in a nearby town of Cheneyville. I mean, like you said, you might be 40 miles out there, but you can do 40 miles on a horse in a day. Oh, yeah. And you can spend a few days in town partying. Fuck you yeah. Know? <clears throat> you got a bunch of slaves. <laughs> yeah they'll take care of shit yeah <laughs> you can do whatever you want you can go to the boundary waters for a week i've got the literal family that i own out there taking care of the place like i'll just i'll be fine yeah so yeah here's what davis says about Bowie's love of partying society was important to james Bowie. he loved company and his open frank manner and even temper attracted others to him he was also ambitious and knew it could be to his interest to cultivate friendships with what John Bowie called the better class of the people. I mean, John Bowie sounds like an intelligent person because they were a better class of the people. <laughs> I mean, not better, but wealthier. Right? Yeah. And there, on rare occasion, when there were too many glasses and the merriment turned to harsh words, his other side might emerge. The displays of his anger were terrible, Brother John recalled, and frequently terminated in some tragical scene. He would not abide an insult. Jesus. When enraged, when enraged, James Bowie became entirely single-minded in his determination to vent his anger on a foe. What observers took for fearlessness was as much an entire forgetfulness of his own safety in the grips of fury. Jesus Christ. He soon acquired a reputation as a man both to respect and fear. All right, so great guy, as long as you don't <laughs> yeah. disagree with him. <laughs> Jim, your promissory note is always good with <laughs> us, bro. <laughs> yeah, no shit. He sounds like a fucking mafia capo. <laughs> no wonder he never had one of his fucking claims turned down. I mean, he doesn't sound like a, like a, again, though, he's a young guy, you know, he likes to party. He seems like a nice enough dude, but you know, yeah. if you're, if you're an asshole, he's going to let you know that you're an asshole. Right? I mean, maybe like, that's how you're reading that. <laughs> maybe. He, yeah, he's has a temper for sure. He's, he's young. He's, he's full of himself. Right. And like we said, he's a bit of a rube. He's a bit of a good old boy. He gets drunk and, you know, he's, he's a redneck, right? Like, but <laughs> certainly what the way his brother his describes it is not just normal rage. rage. <clears throat> I mean, 
He also says that he's got a pretty even temper, though. Right. All right. <laughs> so this is like this is you know William Davis trying to have it both ways again, and maybe I am a little bit too, for sure. So actually, in 1819, Bowie joined his own filibustering expedition into New Spain as well. This one was called the Long Expedition, and. Whereas uh, the Gutierrez-McGee expedition had kind of like gotten off to a good start, basically the long expedition was just a total shit show from page one. And they also got completely destroyed by the Spanish army. Uh, However, like his brother, Jim Bowie was long gone by that point. (laughs) He basically like made it into Texas and was like, oh, this is a real shit show. And then was just like, I'm going home. You know, I can just go party and you know i still i have this land you know like i could hang out yeah, there. he knows when to cut his losses totally. it's like yeah this was sounding like a good plan a couple days ago but i've done a little drinking and i've done a little thinking and uh i think i'm going home so unfortunately as he gets home from the long expedition he's running into some economic trouble because Remember the whole bubble thing with like land speculation? I don't know. It's so crazy with capitalism, but it actually. I mean, eventually, what was everyone else cutting down trees now, so they're not worth anything? Or, well, I mean, yeah, basically. <laughs> well, the 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 speculation bubble burst, and there was a financial depression that started in eighteen eighteen and basically lasted two years. Well, what triggered it? <laughs> couldn't just be like everyone people saying, buying like, everything on bullshit <laughs> yeah it couldn't have just been like everyone being like oh yeah totally uh, i own all this land uh, and all that land i think still maybe or nah, i might yep. have sold that uh i don't know just give me what i want please so i can drink and go like on a battle this is it's so surprising but yeah that actually wrecked the economy <laughs> <laughs> well and on top of it you know, a hurricane also swept through in 1819 and caused widespread damage. All so right. Jim Bowie didn't like figure out that he should just literally buy all of that damaged land. Did he? Right. <laughs> well, uh, so yeah, you know, he's running into financial difficulties. It's a down market and he's strapped for cash. And especially if he wants to, cause like, again, he's ambitious, but he doesn't want to like, do it the hard way like his pa did and keep moving west. He wants to make some easy money and make it quickly. Well, yeah. How else are you going to start speculating on huge tracts of land? He's figured out how awesome not working is. Exactly. Yes. He's had the slave family out there for like two years managing things. He's been hunting and fishing, hanging out with society, drinking and fighting. Yeah. I mean... You're right, Jared. He figured it out. Because <laughs> fuck, working sucks. Working does fucking suck. <laughs> when you figure out how much it's awesome to not work, it really sucks to go back to work. <laughs> All right, bathroom break. Yeah, bathroom break, and then I've got one more section. So I, I wanted to pick up on what you just said before the break, Jared. <clears throat> yes. That... This actually, I think, really is telling when we look at the comparative history of, like, Mexico and the United States in this time period. Because these these hustling Bowie brothers, it never even occurs to them that they might have to work for someone else. Do you understand what I mean? Like, 
there's never even a chance that they would be, in a sense, proletarianized. Because before, I mean, where where would they ever get that idea? I mean, exactly. It, what when they pissed their dad off and right, he made them, I don't know, cut down trees for like a couple of days. Right, but I I mean, again, there isn't really like the level of like um, hierarchical society to have that type of labor force, and all the labor is done by slaves. Yeah. Right? Whereas in Mexico at this time, you know, Father Hidalgo is able to put together a peasant mob. You know, he's able to put together a peasant mob and raise hell against the aristocracy. Where's the peasant mob here? You know, they're people are too diffuse. Exactly. They're too diffuse. You know, most and of them are slaves. slaves. Yeah. <laughs> like they <clears throat> abolished the Catholics abolished slavery. Right. Well, except for Africans. But like even then. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't the same thing. Well, and I mean, the Spanish were still sending a lot of Africans to other parts of Spain. But by now, revolutionary Mexico is basically like shut down. And the revolutionaries were super against slavery. But um, yeah, the Bowie brothers, it was never even an option that they would work for someone else. The idea is always that you get more land and you get slaves and you develop it. And ideally, you become a plantation owner, right? You become the guy sitting on the porch drinking whiskey. And, you know, no, I mean, it sounds like ideally you build the plantation owner's house and then sell it to him. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then he does all that. And then you move farther west. Mm -hmm. But I I just think this illustrates, you know, so things that we started talking about very early in the series, the compounding effect of like slavery in America versus the encomienda and the hacienda system in Mexico, where public land was owned what was what we could th- would think of as empty land was owned by the spanish king right and was governed in a way more akin to what public land how go- public land is governed in america today which is that someone does own it it's the government you know not just empty go settle there go go take a squat and see what happens and also that systems of production were actually set up around around like wage labor right around the idea that time is a commodity and that you get to, you know, sell some of it. But that was not the case in the American South and the American Southwest at this time, right? America is great because America is good. <clears throat> I mean, it's just different though, right? Like this is why <laughs> this is this is all still setting up that conflict that would come down the road. But yeah, so, you know, the economy's on a downturn and Jim Bowie is like strapped for cash, but he wants to do land speculation because he sure as fuck doesn't want to have to work. Right. So, well, <laughs> I can sympathize with that. Well, <laughs> all it takes, all it takes. <laughs> I'm so Jared, fucking sick of working. <laughs> he decides that he's going to go into a legitimate business with some of his family members and all it takes is a visit from one of his old filibustering friends to get them in on the action. The action being slave smuggling. Smuggling? <laughs> slave smuggling, yes. Okay. Couldn't you just, like, do the same thing you did with the cows and the horses? <laughs> no. Jared, <laughs> obviously <Okay>. not. <laughs> Slaves are way more valuable than cows and horses. 
So you go, you go where the money is. So you got to smuggle them. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. Here's why. I'll, let's let's do a, <laughs> let's do a brief history of slavery in America. Okay. Well, this seems unnecessary, <laughs> I guess, but perhaps I'm uninformed. So slavery in America. I don't know if you've heard about this, Jared. America used to have a lot of slaves. There used to be a lot of people who owned slaves here, um, and it was kind of a big deal. Used to have. Right. Oh, definitely. Yeah, used to, for sure. So, slavery literally built the fabric of the United States society. Like, in terms of infrastructure, institutions, laying out the fucking, you know, roadwork and cutting the cutting the timber that built America on the Bowie plantation, all that work was done by slaves. Uh, and the culture. Oh, so you're talking um, about back then right back then yeah okay okay and so i think you know slavery has basically predetermined generational wealth and lack thereof generational wealth for the people who owned slaves back then and lack thereof for the descendants of those slaves well just remember from time immemorial the wealthiest people have always worked the hardest <laughs> well, and and we should we should mention generational wealth too. No, I feel like we've talked about generational wealth a lot. I guess so, but I mean, this is just the fact that you know, even if your parents are around to give you a thousand dollar loan, that's generational wealth, right? If um, your uh, grandpa helps you out with your textbooks in college, that's generational wealth. And definitely, yeah. if you get a family of four fucking slaves, which is a generation by itself, and you exploit their labor for fucking 50 years that's also generational wealth yeah i feel like crucially though like if your ancestors were that family that was owned by the buoys mm-hmm. you have like the inverse of generational wealth exactly exactly <laughs> and it explains a lot about divisions and um the distribution of wealth in our society today yeah you know, it's just weird, though. Like, poverty makes you lazy and uh, all <laughs> right. that stuff. Sure, sure. And I'll, I'll just point out, William Jefferson Davis definitely did not write any about any of that that we just discussed. <laughs> Man, I feel like it is probably a good thing that he didn't write about that because yeah. I, I don't feel like, uh, I don't think we'd like what he would have to say on that topic. <clears throat> right. Well, let's... Uh... Let's read a little bit here. Undeniably, and especially in a region like Louisiana, where there was no established aristocracy of old families, the ownership of slaves brought to the newer men a species of social equality that they craved. The Bowies, too, sought that, though in James's case at least it was not so much for social station for its own sake as for the opportunity to enhance his fortunes afforded by access to the upper strata of society which goes back to the con man thing right okay like, wait what <laughs> he's saying he's saying that he only owns slave i mean part of the reason he owned slaves Bowie did it's not so much that he was so invested in working the land although he did do that yeah it was more that by owning slaves he gained access to people who he could con and get you know promissory notes give promissory notes okay. to and so by know. owning slaves he was able to talk to other people that owned even more slaves exactly yeah i mean okay. it was it was like a it's you know a 
fucking consumerist thing, right? <laughs> <clears throat> All right, so here's the thing, though. This is this is the deal. Congress, that pesky United States Congress, abolished the African slave trade in 1808. So basically, you know, they came up with this bright idea that just regulate the market instead of the deep socioeconomic Didn't problem. Did they do that like, <laughs> because they were getting pressured by Britain to do that? I'm not sure about that. I, I haven't read into it. But I do know that what became a super profitable right after they outlawed the importation of African slaves. Smuggling slaves. Smuggling slaves. Okay. That became a big market. So they're smuggling them, what, from New Spain? Well, let's find out. Okay. <clears throat> smuggling of slaves commenced as soon as Congress abolished the foreign trade most of them coming into the country through the Caribbean and the Gulf Coast. The federal government made only halting efforts to contain smuggling or to capture the smugglers themselves, and since Congress had failed to provide a policy on how to handle any contraband slaves seized, the several states devised their own means. One thing they definitely would not do was send them back to Africa, or to the South American countries from whose slave ships many of them had been captured in the first yeah, place. That sounds like it would cost money. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're here anyway. You've already got them, right? <clears throat> I mean, it seems like the governor's <laughs> nephew is probably going to get quite a few slaves. <laughs> the best solution seemed to be to sell them at auction, with the proceeds going into the federal treasury. The slaves thus sold henceforward acquired legal status. And the government at least derived some good from those breaking its laws. Some states, Louisiana among them, provided an added incentive by promising half the auction proceeds to the person or persons turning in the smuggled slaves. Oh, fuck. Or on whose information they were taken. Holy shit. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? <laughs> uh, yeah, we got to go find us some runaway slaves or whatever they're. What do we got to say that they are? <laughs> they had been smuggled, but we are turning them in. Ah, yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. So we, we, definitely, gotta, we definitely didn't smuggle them, though. We got to find a bunch of smuggled <laughs> slaves somehow. <laughs> so, um. Man, we're really going to help Louisiana here. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, a lot of slaves were still going to other parts of New Spain, not Mexico, but, you know, the, there are many holdings in the Caribbean where they had sugar plantations, South America, Venezuela, Colombia. So, and probably New Spain. And there was a lot of pirates in the Caribbean. I don't know if you've heard about these pirates of the Caribbean. Uh... <laughs> well, What's one of the things this wasn't in the movie. But one of oh. the things they captured a lot of was slaves. Those pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah, I mean, okay, so there was that one lady in the sequel, but she was like a who she was like a voodoo lady. Yeah. Are there black people in the first Pirates of the Caribbean? I I mean, I don't even think so. I think some of the pirates are black. Are they though? I can't remember. I don't think maybe in the second one. I don't know about the first one. All right, so this guy comes to visit the buoys in Louisiana, this old military friend of theirs from their filibustering time. And remember, filibustering, it literally means land piracy. Stealing. <laughs> it's it's freebooting, the Dutch word for piracy. 
it's their land pirates. So this land pirate comes to visit the buoys who knew them from when they were land pirates. And what do you know? He's actually gotten into some sea pirating, a natural, natural extension for a land pirate. And he was based out of this place called Galvestown, which is modern day Galveston, just off the coast of Texas. Galveston is this big island, right? So he just shows he just shows up like covered in oil. <laughs> <laughs> well, I looked it up. Galveston looks like a shitty tourist tourist trap now. It's like full of theme oh, parks and. Did I not tell you about my time? Oh, I got the sweatshirt in Galveston. Get the fuck out of here, dude! No, You're wearing I swear a Galveston to God. sweatshirt. Yeah, dude. Well, you, it's a rain. You... It's a rainforest cafe sweatshirt. <laughs> <laughs> but like I got this both because it's a super sick tie dye peace sign yeah frog mentioning sweatshirt okay but I also got it because it like symbolizes what Galveston is which is just like yeah awful. rainforest cafe <laughs> yeah rainforest cafe is the worst fucking restaurant you can ever go to for sure yeah it's seen it's like more. it's Galveston as a whole like it seems really cool when you hear about it <laughs> the concept sounds you know pretty cool it's yeah this like town on the gulf of mexico mm-hmm. and then you show up and it's just rainforest cafe like, <laughs> as an environment <laughs> yeah i mean all the native bayou and vegetation nope <laughs> it's all gone it's all it's all like fucking condos and yeah. oil slicks man uh, well, back then, it was basically a hotbed of piracy. And the thing was, is it was close to America, but not in America. And Mexico had this oh, whole Oh, yeah, Galveston there. Island is like four miles off of, not even. It's well, like how far is it miles. from Louisiana, though? Because remember, Texas wasn't part of these states. Oh, okay, from Louisiana, it's probably quite a ways. Well, it's quite a ways. It's far enough, right? But not too far. You know what I'm saying? You might it might be a good place to build your slave mart, perhaps. <laughs> slave mart. That's that's Davis's words, not mine. Okay, Whoa, Davis what? says slave mart. <laughs> that's a quote. That's a, well, I didn't quote him directly there. But this slave sounds like mart a Futurama a episode. <laughs> it's slave mart. Jesus. Okay. 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 <clears throat> That's a lot more grim than I thought. I thought it was just like this place you could like hang out and do some vaguely illegal stuff. So th- this this pirate, this French pirate by the name of Jean Lafitte and his brother Pierre, they were doing lots of piracy in the Caribbean and they were mainly targeting Spanish vessels and they were capturing lots and lots of African slaves. But being based out of Galvestown, they couldn't sell them to Mexico because the revolutionaries, that was a big no-go, right? Wait a minute. Where were all these Spanish ships in that area going with all these slaves? Well, to the other Caribbean provinces, you know. I mean, these guys were operating around the Caribbean. Oh, and, okay. Um, you know, Not just would, in the Gulf. Right, yeah. Gotcha. And they, but they would take them back to Galvestown. And from there, they would, you know, set up the slave march, right? Like, so, basically, this... Old friend of theirs from this the is Army. all sounding like a <laughs> fucking Fallout Two scenario. Right now. <laughs> this friend of theirs from the army by the name of Warren Hall comes to visit the buoys, 
And basically, he kind of gives them this pitch. He's been talking to this pirate, Lafitte. They're like, we got all these slaves. We've got, we've got extra inventory of slaves, and we don't know what to do with them. So they're like, let's get in. Let's get a little slave smuggling operation going. And Bowie needs the money. So a few words about this, this place they were operating out of. This is called Campeche. Campeche lay close enough to Louisiana that the distance to his buyers was not prohibitive. Moreover, rather than risk his own skin, Lafitte, by importing the slaves into Louisiana, for which penalties up to death awaited, he could simply establish a slave mart there and let the Louisiana buyers come to him. Okay. And then they're taking the risk? Right. Specifically, people like Jim Bowie, right? That's Mm -hmm. the deal. How many people were actually executed doing this? Because I, well, there were revenueers. There were like cut revenue cutters, like these ships that would patrol the Gulf. Yeah, but how much could you pay them to just fuck off? Well, apparently not enough because they still employed Jim Bowie and his two brothers, John and Resin Jr., as slave smugglers. Okay, or rather, they came to these guys and basically set up a special deal with Wait, them. The it wasn't like an employed did? thing. No, 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 no. The pirates did. Sure, sure. I'm saying, like, if you did get caught by the authorities, basically how many slave trips is it going to take for you to be able to buy off these people? Well, I mean, they were definitely pliable, as we'll see. So, the buoys get a special deal from the pirates who are selling the slaves. Lafitte sold, this is quoting from Davis, Lafitte sold slaves, like any other merchandise, by weight. At $1 a pound, the average healthy male costing $140. He had also a supply of weak and ill blacks that he could not sell and that he did not care for overmuch. But still, he kept them rather than turn them out or simply kill them. And I'm like, okay, okay, William Jefferson Davis, calm down about the killing slaves part. Is he saying that like... In juxtaposition to the other slave sellers that did kill the weak ones, or he is he just I, like he really doesn't he doesn't provide any context for that. So okay, so this is more like I think this is this, this is, is lost Davis. cause policy. Then I think this is it. Yeah, this is this is like double eugenics. <laughs> All right, a weak, so a weak black is worth even less than a healthy one. So the buoys, the buoys come to the pirates on Galveston, but you know you got to do business, right? It's not like you're just going to work for them. You're there to buy the product. You're the intermediary. Oh you yeah, you're a market. contractor. You're not an you're employee. Like, you're a fucking contractor, right? But they get a special deal because they're willing to move bulk. Okay, that's the critical thing. Well, of course. They also tendered a dollar a pound, but they also offered to buy the infirm and sick blacks as well, though for a reduced price. Because they know that given the outlaw of the importation, once they get them back to Louisiana, they're going to go for like, you know, maybe a thousand, twelve hundred dollars a slave. You're paid a hundred and forty, right? Yeah. So that that's the, the basic deal. But again, they couldn't do it by sea because of those revenue cutters. Okay, revenue being a tax, right? They're like these people are avoiding a tax; they're avoiding the government's levy, and so we're cutting for them. But 
because of all their time filibustering and going back and forth between Spanish Texas and Louisiana. Yeah, pretty good on a horse. They're pretty good on a horse, and the Bowies had a pretty good knowledge of the terrain between the area of Galveston and the area of Louisiana that they occupied. Yeah, so they could outrun anyone chasing. Exactly. I mean, it's... If it weren't for the... Well, actually, it is Dukes of Hazard shit, because it is still based yeah. on horrible slavery, but it totally. is kind of like good old boys, like, you know, flattening the curves, no right? Harm. Never mean and no harm. You know... Beats all you never saw, and they've been in trouble with the law since the day they was born. Yeah, they go over some sick ramps there sometimes. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Get themselves out of a jam a time or two. Yes. <laughs> um, so yeah, they use their knowledge of the borderlands to march slaves cross-country in groups of 40. And that was basically Jim's job. The older brother, John, he had really poor eyesight. So he was basically at home dealing with, like, the, the, the authorities that who they would then turn them into. And then Resin Jr. was kind of the guy who provided the connection. And Jim Bowie did a lot of the legwork. Like, fa- frankly, I think it was partly just because it seemed like something to do. Like, he was kind of, you know, like, this sounds fucking rad. Like, I, I get mean, to hike across country and... Going on a human cattle drive well i i made a note here i was like it's kind of the underground swamp road of slavery in a sense like yeah all right so yeah Bowie basically he actually does lose a few a few a few slaves run off but you know and this is this is what who i'm cares? saying he, he's like who fucking cares he doesn't even yeah. like he basically just carries a gun because he wants to intimidate the people but mainly, they're like, we don't fucking know where we are. We've been, like, captured and held on a ship and then on fucking Galveston for, you know, a month. And yeah. Now they're we're also the like, woods. we can't talk to you. Right. They're basically just, like, ready <laughs> to, like, you know, if you have, like, a roof for them and an opportunity to lay down at night, sounds pretty good, probably, you know? Like, because, I mean, it's it's horrible, right? But at the same time... You're the least awful person they've encountered. Probably, you know? And that's the thing about about Bowie is like he never seems to have any penchant for being mean to people with less power than him. Like all of the fights he starts, all the trouble he causes, it's mainly with people who are like at or above his size. In the sense of like he he would take no pleasure in like just dicking over someone for no reason. But if you insult him, I mean, that's a different story, right? So again, it's not excusable. Eh. There are way worse people, is what I'm saying, right? Yeah. It sounds like everyone else that is his contemporary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's just hanging out and has a yeah. bit of a temper. Right. All right, so, um, yeah, the Bowie's hit upon this simple scheme. They would themselves turn the slaves in to a state or federal official as illegal imports, while concealing their own roles as the conveyors of the blacks. That was their ingenious way of making money. Yeah. It's pretty nice. Uh, Hey, found all these drugs uh, that (laughs) drug dealers were going to bring here. Uh, You want to pay me more than I could sell these for? (laughs) Yeah, and well, it only required that they find an official or officials who would not show much curiosity at the Bowie's seemingly remarkable civic spirit 
as they repeatedly turned in large numbers of slaves and then engaged successfully in the bidding at the auction. (laughs) So not only that, they were buying back the slaves. Hey man, citizens of the year here. Ironically, Pierre Lafette himself, one of the pirates, had been a deputy U.S. Marshal in in Ascension Parish a few years earlier, charged with enforcing the slave trade laws. (laughs) Man, that's uh, (laughs) quite an evolution there of career choice. No doubt he still had connections there, or one of his successors was sufficiently susceptible to bribery to ask no questions. So he was like the first senator of Louisiana, it sounds like. Better still, Jim and Rezin's own sister, Martha, had married Alexander Sterrett, who was the brother of an attorney in New Orleans and would soon be appointed customs officer for the Mississippi District. All right. Well, <laughs> and here Jefferson boy, Davis says. Seems like these libertarians have quite a government going here. <laughs> William C. Davis says, if anything, the Bowie's connections were almost too easy. (laughs) Now, there was one problem, though, to this ingenious slave smuggling scheme. Taxes. Uh, Not even. Oh. It was hard cash because the pirates said, money up front, motherfucker. Uh, No money, no slaves, and we don't fucking take credit. See, that's tough, because I ain't got much cash, but I got a whole lot of credit. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. So, Lafitte wants his money up front. And to basically gather the capital to buy that first string of slaves to smuggle, Jim Bowie has to sell all of his land holdings to actually his brother Stephen, who Davis makes a big point of saying is the dumb one of the family. Most of the brothers are either above average or average intelligent, but Stephen is like, he's the dumb bald one, you know? Coincidentally also named Stephen. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. To... Restorestephenbaldwin.com. <laughs> Look it up. The man is a crazy person. <laughs> to little brother Stephen, Jim Bowie sells 480 acres. This is parcels that he's kind of pieced together since initially squatting as well as the now six slave family and a mulatto slave woman i'm gonna see if i can find this quote about the mulatto slave woman because it's actually kind of funny this is back when james was feeling the bite of the depression in february he had bought a mulatto slave woman by the way do we need to say what mulatto is uh... i mean Davis clearly so. loves this word. I thought you're not supposed to just be like dropping that word. I guess for whatever reason, Davis is really attached to describing her as this word. Yes. Should I stop saying that? Is that bad? I don't know, man. So I'm quoting him. Somebody who's got mixed race parents. Yes, exactly. Basically. Yeah. Like the other Jim Bowie. So in February, he had bought this slave woman from a judge by the name of Jesse Andrus of the parish court <laughs> at Appaloosas for $1,200. And he had given his note on June 1st. He basically just gave a credit to buy this slave woman for $1,200. Okay. The date of the, you know, when the credit was due came and went. <laughs> and when 
Jim Bowie didn't pay, Andrus started demanding the money. This guy's a judge, right? Yeah. And Bowie refused to pay. Moreover, he used Boy, a technicality. <laughs> refusing to pay a judge for the slave he sold you that? <laughs> yes. That's a bold move. <laughs> well, and then Bowie used a technicality when Andrus got summons for him to appear at the court at Appaloosas. He lived in Iovaye Parish, Bowie argued, and was not subject to St. Landry summons. Andrus continued trying to get Bowie God, to court. you do really see the world differently when you're rich, huh? I know, yeah. <laughs> Andrus continued trying to get Bowie to court through the summer of 1819 to no avail. And when James went off on the long expedition, it may have been in part for evading him and hoping that he would change his fortunes. But at any rate, that, that slave woman, he also sells to his brother with the rest of his, you know, hard assets. And he never pays back the judge. Just FYI, the judge never gets his money. Never gets paid back. <laughs> Has to drop the suit, basically. Just because it's it's like, what am I going to do? Fight Jim Bowie? Try and arrest yeah. him? <laughs> I mean, he's insane. <laughs> yeah. I mean, also, you're fucking selling human beings, so fuck you. Exactly. Yeah. Fuck these guys. <laughs> so, yeah. Bowie basically sells off all of his assets to get his share of the initial buy-in. And he would end up making four trips slave smuggling. Personally, running through the wilderness of the Gulf Coast at this time, Bowie smuggled about 180 slaves from New Spain back into Louisiana. And he's making what, like a thousand about well thousand bucks each? Because this is the thing. Let's let's talk about the the economy of this here. I was gonna say, how much is it like <laughs> roughly a thousand dollars in this day well, and age? If a slave sold at auction for a thousand dollars, the buoys really only paid a net of five hundred after receiving their reward, which was half of the sale price. Add the $140 they paid Lafitte for the slave, and they had an investment of $640. But with the sale came a clear and legal title to the slave, which had been effectively laundered, and could now be sold for up to $1,000 again, netting them a profit of about $360 per slave. So altogether, they, uh, John, the oldest brother, reports like that they made... Each. Well, they were making about 360 after costs for each slave. Buying them back. But yeah, this is including including the buying them in the first place and the selling them, right? They pay, they pay $140, then they pay 500 to buy them back from themselves, right? That's 640. Okay. They sell them for 1000, they make 360. Gotcha. <clears throat> so, altogether they smuggled about 180 slaves. And they ended up making, according to oldest brother John, about $65,000 altogether, which is a shitload of money in, you know, fucking 1819, 1820, yeah. right? Shitload. I mean, that's like, that's like half a house now. But like half, is, half of a tool shed. Yeah. Now. You But you got to split it three ways, though. You got three brothers, right? All so right. that's about so 21,000 like piece, piece. It's like a sixth of a tool shed now, then. Here's the kicker, though, Jared. I know you're going to be surprised that these con men might have gotten conned. Because this is the thing. They paid hard cash for the slaves, but then they're bringing them back to America and selling them in a down economy. 
so they're getting credit back again. <laughs> they're getting credit. Is back that why again. they only did it four times? Because they didn't have <laughs> enough cash to do it five. Yeah, it is, isn't it? <laughs> God damn it! So <laughs> <laughs> they're geniuses, but they're idiots. <laughs> the pirates are the only ones that know what's up. <laughs> So yeah, they were paying hard cash, but they were selling the slaves for a mix of cash and promissory notes, which as we know, Jim Bowie, he's not going to be the only guy who doesn't pay back his debts, right? Obviously not. Especially why for you, slaves. Why do you think credit's so easy to get? <laughs> and I mean, he's doing like the same thing is happening to him that he did. Yeah, to the that people judge, that are giving right? him the credit are like, fuck, we got all this credit. We got to do something with it. <laughs> So in reality, they probably only got a fraction of the money that they were that they were due. Wow. And the oldest brother actually says that they soon spent all of it. Like what little money they did get, they basically partied it away. And, you know, and, and to be fair, the older two brothers who weren't doing a whole lot of the legwork to begin with, they were both family men by now when basically had plantations, as well as the younger brother who Jim Bowie had sold all of his land to, right? So basically Jim... His brothers all have families and land. Yeah, he's left holding the bag. Yeah. He thought he was grifting his younger brother. And then the economy went to shit. And he's left (laughs) holding the bag. Yeah. And he's got nothing, right? Oh, fuck. Well, time to double down now. But critically, though, Jim Bowie is still broke, bored, and ambitious. And I'm going to quote Davis here because he finishes this chapter perfectly. Owning neither plantation nor home of his own now, at the age of 24, he was going to make a bid to be the biggest land speculator the Southwest had ever seen. That's where we'll close it. (laughs) That's Bowie 1. Well, you were right. I love this man. (laughs) I mean, yeah, it's... uh... It's a good story. It's it's a good story. Hey, man, he's learning his lessons well. Mm-hmm. He knows what to do now. Yeah, he does. So, yeah, this next episode will kind of, like, track Bowie through his, you know, middle years, his 20s and early 30s in the South. See what <laughs> see what kind of trouble he can land in next. Oh, yeah. This next episode is going to be like fucking Goodfellas, isn't it? It totally is. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and then we'll see why he ends up going to Mexico and what happens there. And that'll be kind of the third part. And then that's when we'll jump back into our primary Alamo series. <laughs> All right. So, yeah. All right. Just to kind of start wrapping things up a little bit. I have some bad news some bad news about our oh. one of our favorite segments on the show the compost bin of history mailbag we get so many letters so so <laughs> many emails but i have terrible terrible ill news about our beloved email account i have forgotten the password and been locked out of the <laughs> compost bin of history at gmail.com email account what you can't recover it I probably can, but I simply don't have the time or the will. I have a podcast to make <laughs> and a job to do. Okay. So it's with great regret that I inform you and all of our listeners that I am temporarily retiring the Compostman of History mailbag until probably July is probably when I'll get around to it. So 
Until then. Fair enough. You can still email us at compostbinofhistory at gmail.com, but I probably won't look at it for several months. Yeah. Oh, man, now how are we going to realize when our car's warranty has <laughs> expired? <laughs> that one that we took out in the podcast name and as a tax dodge? <laughs> yeah, totally. You yeah, know, with, with the warranty company. <laughs> Right, anything I, you wanna... I, think it's, I think it's the dealership service center now. Uh, anything you want to sum up with, Jared? Well, you're never going to get ahead by working. And, uh, yeah. you know, if you're really good at grifting people, watch out because you're about to get the shit grifted out of you, probably. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We've already seen it happen a couple times, I feel yeah. like. Well, he's, you know, you got to get grifted a few times before you can really grift, you know. <laughs> It's got to happen to you a few times. I'm telling you, dude. You got to be a pirate. They're the only ones that know what's up. <laughs> well, I, I guess that seems a good as good a place to any to end it. But uh, oh, oh, wait, Jared, look look down the audio track there. I think oh, no. I think I think the bridge is out. By God. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! But luckily, someone left a huge pile of compost right next to the the to the bridge. I'm gonna oh. try and I'm gonna try and ramp the podcast over. It. <laughs> well, we're going to have to imagine some banjos playing and see what happens next time on the old compost bin of history. Looks like those compost boys are going to need a couple more pitchforks. Because they're in a whole pile of shit. Like a piece of cake. Cut that one awfully close there, Hoss. Copperhead rule.